This time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Ooh, I'll get that, Kirk. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show. We're putting humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gip, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week, we are very excited to be joined once again by Jesse Gender from the YouTube channel. Jesse Gender, who does amazing Star Trek sci-fi general nerd queer etc. videos. Hi, Jesse. What, what, what do podcasts need with a guest? Come on. <laughs> so we can get our wisdom out there, I guess. Right? Exactly. I mean, in theory, it's cross-promotion, but we have like five viewers and you have several thousand, so oh. I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> I like to have fun. You guys are wonderful. You're, you, in fact, way, 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 way back when I was on your, your uh, podcast before, I think you were one of the first podcasts that ever asked me to, to be a guest, so... It's it's kind of coming full circle. Oh heck! Because now this, I guess full circle is probably the bad way to put it. Because that would imply this would be like one of the last podcasts I ever do, which is not <laughs> hopefully not the case. And then she died. Oh. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow I die. Oh. That'd be awful. <laughs> uh, I'd rather you be like transcended into a higher state of being mm. or something like that. I think that would be more. Yeah, cool. pull a Daniel Jackson from Stargate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then a season later you'll come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every podcast episode you die and then come back. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. We need to get like twenty more to match the Stargate. I'm here. I'm here for that. Oh my gosh! Yeah, just I, that'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah, someone will just replace me. I'll be back next season after a fan outcry. It'll be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Except I liked Quinn. I, liked, I, I swear fine. Quinn gets a short shift. Yeah, yeah, Quinn is fine. Yeah, I, I, I like him to, to like have stayed around and just sort of like the fifth member of the band at that point. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm one of those weirdos that, like, I actually really loved uh, the final few seasons almost better than the rest of the entire se- season, so I actually like the replacement with Ben Broder, because I love oh, Ben yeah. Broder. I got, I got obsessed with Stargate in the final two seasons. I tried to, like, model an entire Warhammer army based on the Ancients and all of the Arthurian shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. That stuff was wonderful. I mean... Uh, there was some. There was it Lady Nightbrave, another wonderful YouTuber, did a recent video and actually made a very good point about like how problematic the Goa'uld are as like a, a concept for religion because it's like using because the whole whole show is like a takedown of religion. Speaking of this, the movie we're gonna be talking about, um, but like it uses like cultures like Egyptian culture and a lot of like cultures of different uh, places that um, the writers were clearly not from, whereas the Ori are actually like space catholics which is a much more like nuanced critique so it actually makes like a really great point that the the ori are a much less problematic uh allegory for the issues with religion indeed yeah so thanks for joining us for the preview of our stargate podcast <laughs> <laughs> it's a show i don't talk about enough but it's great it is great. Yeah, well, I appreciate you tying it into the movie like we had something planned. Yeah, no, it was planned. What are you, what are you talking about? I have no idea what yeah, you're talking Everything's planned, planned 100%. Here, don't worry about it. Don't think about it, guys. Uh, we're, we're, we're on a script for sure. Uh-huh, 100%. I, I, we, we talked about this beforehand. It was great. <laughs> so, uh, so, 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 which one of us is the Ori? Hallowed be the Ori. <laughs> For the people who aren't going to listen to the end of the podcast, Jesse, where can people find you in a more concise way than I was putting it? <laughs> They're just, you're, you're just preemptively saying, it's like, yeah, no one's going to listen to this whole damn thing, so just get it out of the way now. 
Um, no, uh, you can find me at Jesse Gender, my main YouTube channel. I'll save like all the other fun stuff, but my my big thing is uh, my YouTube channel, Jesse Gender, where I talk about LGBTQ and social issues through nerdums and geekdoms and things like that. So yeah, that's the that's the basic thing. Like I said, I have I have a bunch of social medias and other stuff, but I'll talk about that towards the end. And it's easy to find anyone with a Google nowadays. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Google knows all. Google sees all. So this week we are continuing our movies. Since last week we did Star Trek Four, now we have Star Trek Five. The best Star Trek. Surprise! See how that works. <laughs> <laughs> the Final Frontier, which implies it's the last movie, and I, I'm surprised it wasn't. It, it, it almost oh. was. Yeah. Almost, yeah. <laughs> All right, so Jesse, like we we had trouble getting everyone slotted into movies for these these guest slots, but like there were other movies on the table. Like mm-hmm. like Wrath of Khan was available when you were picking a movie. So I want I want you to have to explain yourself to the people. <laughs> Why I picked this one? <laughs> uh, that, that is fair. Uh, to be fair, okay. So my favorite uh, Star Trek movie, just overall, uh, at least of the original series. Well, actually, it's probably my favorite overall. Um, is Undiscovered Country, which was taken off the table pretty early. So I would have talked about that one quite a bit. But even if once you take Undiscovered Country off the table, I feel like the rest of the movies have all been talked about a lot. Um, like Wrath of Khan, there's only so much you can you can say about Wrath of Khan that hasn't already been said. Whereas this movie, I have a, I have a bunch of thoughts about uh, the Final Frontier. Like it is not a good movie by any means, but it I do think that there are some actual good elements to it. Like there's a couple really good scenes uh, throughout this film that I actually think are often underappreciated. And then the rest of it is like so weird in a bad it's good way that I really kind of just enjoy watching this film like I I have never not enjoyed watching this film but I think the most enjoyment I get is actually similar to what what a feeling I just got with um with Venom 2 I just went and saw Venom 2 uh (laughs) and it's a similar feeling where it's like this is not a good movie but if I get drunk and just laugh at it with friends like I I watched Star Trek 5 with friends on one of my birthdays and we just got drunk and just made fun of it and just enjoyed it and it was a, it was actually a really good time. So yeah, I mean I feel like this movie there's not a lot said about it. I do think there are some underappreciated elements of it that are uh better than some people would give it credit for. But on the whole, I think that this is a very enjoyable movie in a so bad it's a good way. It's not like Star Trek Nemesis, which is, in my opinion, the most depressing, sad, and, and ultimately kind of boring and frustrating movie of the franchise. Yeah, I will agree. Given the choice of the bad Star Trek movies from each you know, franchise, this is... My, I, would, I would watch this over Nemesis any day, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And even over... Um, <laughs> ah, I, Into Darkness, I also think, is another one that gets a worse rap than it... In it than it deserves, but I would even say I would sometimes prefer this one over Into Darkness, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I would agree with that, even though I've only seen Into Darkness once. Mm-hmm. I find Into Darkness kind of funny mm-hmm. to watch, so I get a sort of weird, hubris sort of approach to it. It's like, it's not trying to be a comedy, but it's, it's just I just find myself laughing at some of the absurdity. <laughs> Into Darkness is one of those ones that, like, and we don't, this will be a whole other conversation on that movie, but that's a movie more of, like, failed potential, where I just, I see how that movie could have been really really good had they just made a few changes to it um like conceptually there's some good stuff in there whereas like this movie right from its concept uh, final frontier i'm talking about is like 
It's just a it's a bad idea to go down this road. And, and and I don't often agree with Gene Roddenberry in terms of his like overall thoughts on the Star Trek franchise. Um, I mean, I, I, he gave a Gene Roddenberry was very smart in terms of like coming up with the concepts and putting the right people in the right positions and had a and had a great idea. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think some of his storytelling uh, 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 inclinations are not always the best. But on this front, he actively was like, this is a dumb idea to have the crew go and find God. And you know what? I don't necessarily disagree. <laughs> yeah, and this is, you know, yeah, Gene sort of oversaw a number of episodes in the original series where they kind of did some variant of that mm-hmm. already. But even he's like, no, this is just, this is, no. Well, the, the, <laughs> the thing with the ones in the, in the past were like he had stayed away from overt, like, present day like religion and also framed it as like uh god like like uh like oh these are just aliens being god which this movie kind of does too but it's like not directly confronting me like actual god stuff and i and we were just talking about stargate like the stuff you could talk about in the original series could be seen as problematic but it was also like kind of having fun with it like they met like plato and uh things like that um, which is much less, I feel like talking about like Greek gods, while there certainly are still people who, um, who celebrate that culture, I don't think there's like a practicing religion as something like the Goa Wuld, which are like based off of some practice, like actually practicing religion sort of thing. Oh, you know, there's, uh, l- less, I guess, uh, leftovers from the ancient world, uh, for, uh, you know, the Hellenistic, uh, sort of, a pantheon mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you get, you don't get into as much of a problem when you're dealing with the, you know, "Quote unquote root of Western culture sort of deities than the exploited and uh, orientalized cultures that they did in like Stargate and mm-hmm. other similar stuff." Yeah, but yeah, I agree. Yeah, Roddenberry had some dumb ideas, but this is one of the things where he was like, "Please don't do this." Yeah, please. Yeah, listen, <laughs> this Shatter, is the guy. Please. And keep in mind, this is the dude who fought very hard to have Spock be the one that shot Kennedy. <laughs> That was, I kid you not that was like one of his like he kept like he kept trying to pitch a time travel movie where Spock went back in time and was the person on the grassy knoll like that was his like recurring like we need to do this which is just hilarious oh my god that would have been so this canceled the only way to make history make sense come on guys it was just, he kept pitching it like I have a book of like the, an oral history book of, of Star Trek and like it was one of those ones like every time there was a new movie coming up it's like we gotta have Spock kill kill Kennedy it's like whoa okay dude <laughs> yeah why okay (laughs) so yeah i do i do agree that this is one of the weird fun ones i do i did have like a memory of having this be my favorite of the original movies when i was a kid Mm. which i guess at that time it was just the star trek movies because that was before any of the uh next gen ones Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) and my mom who was the original star trek fan in the family was like really you want to watch that again? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, there's action and you know things going on and kids. You know. Kids like the kids like the bad movies sometimes, like because we latch on to specific things of it. Like I, I, I really loved um, Attack of the Clones as a kid. Like I watched oh, that yeah. over and over and over and over again. Because mm-hmm. there's there's lasers and flashy light swords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I watched. Uh, Yellow Submarine a oh, lot. That I'm was, not sure how that fits. That was into not this. bad. The Yellow Submarine was not bad. Do not impinge my how Yellow many, Submarine. How many drugs drug are you on? Movie. How many drugs are you on as a kid? <laughs> you don't need drugs don't as a kid. That's any. why children can watch Yellow Submarine sober. <laughs> <laughs> so Star Trek V, Final Frontier, came out in 1989. So we are into the movies when I was after I was born. So, you know, y'all can do some math. 
Math. I, I could do some math. Uh, I won't, but I could. <laughs> it was directed and story concepted slash written, co-written by William Shatner as part of a clause in his contract that was the I get anything that later Nimoy gets clause. Mm-hmm. It's a very, 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 very petty clause, by the way. It was. <laughs> Really, the, you know, the, uh, the the studio should have gone like, well, then we won't give it to Nimoy, but we'll give everything to like uh, Michelle Nichols instead, and, and she'll just direct all the movies. Yeah, that would have been great. From third movie on, uh, her as captain. I mean, honestly, I'm honestly here for that, to be fair. I would be too. Those were some of the best episodes of the animated series. Mm-hmm, where she actually got to take control of the Enterprise one, that one time, which was bomb. Yep. Uh, part of Shatner's contract renegotiations to come back for several of the earlier movies were that he would eventually get to write and direct. He was apparently inspired by televangelists, which is a very confusing decision given the rest of the movie that we'll get into. Uh, he found televangelists annoying and wanted to write a s script about it. So this is like a boomer complaint movie. I mean, that, <laughs> kind that, of. that's kind of Shatner's brand at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm angry at something. I'm going to complain about it. And everyone has to listen to me. My. I mean, the man blocked me on Twitter for talking about cisgen the word cisgender in relation to him, which is funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I didn't. I missed that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it was about like. I need to try harder. Yeah, it was about like it was about like two years ago, and he was complaining about like, oh, cisgender is a defensive word, and I just did a video that was like, no, cisgender is like this word, and it wasn't even insulting to him, uh, but it was just sort of like, yeah, no, William Shatner, this is just sort of thing, and I used it as an opportunity to talk about the word cisgender, and then I came on Twitter like the next day or two after that video went up, and was like, you have been blocked by William Shatner. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right, I guess fair, that's fair that enough. Then. I mean, it's his prerogative. I'm not going to tell him it's not. Yeah. But this is funny. Mm -hmm. Straight people are so sensitive. They really are. So, story, of course, by William Shatner, as you already talked about. Also, co-written, tried to fix the script by uh, Harv Bennett and David Logri, who we've talked about before, so I'm not going to go into things too much because we always run long on these. Anyway, there are a few guest stars, but only one particularly notable guest star, which is Lawrence... Uh, Looking Bill playing Cybok. He was on a lot of TV soap opera movies and uh, police and crime shows. He was a guest on Columbo and Murder, She Wrote, and had a very long stage career before screen. Uh, an interesting note that everyone likes to talk about is that the role of Cybok was originally wanted to be given to Sean Connery, but he was busy filming Indiana Jones at the time. Well, probably better for yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> I think that one, probably, that one probably worked out. For the best uh, on that front, but I will say you did forget uh, David Warner is actually in this movie. Surprise! Like I always forget that David Warner's in this film. I know. Yeah. I didn't forget. He's in the slightly smaller guest characters uh, section. Hey Jesse, did you did did you know that uh, Lawrence Luckbill was in a, a specific show? No. What 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 show? He was in the FBI. <laughs> yeah, this is this is his running joke for some reason. <laughs> We've been accosting all of our guests like, with it. <laughs> I want to be clear. I was not involved in this decision. I was like, no, no one, no one told me. <laughs> beautiful, absolutely beautiful. 
Yes, we also have uh, David Warner, as you mentioned, who I spent the entire movie watching, going, "Who? I I know that dude. What is? <laughs> Where is he from? He tortured Picard that one time. Yep. <laughs> tortured Picard. He also was Gorkin in the very next movie, um, which is yeah. funny. Yep. And then also he was uh, not Tron. He was the the bad guy in Tron. He was a uh, master control program. Yeah. I, am I crazy? Is that? Yes. That's, You're that's not hard. crazy. Yeah. I keep forgetting that's that. Right. <laughs> Unless he's playing Sir John Talbot, who's the human representative of the Federation, I guess, on the peace planet. Also, uh, it's very forgettable. It's, it's, it's thankfully they brought him back. It's a sad waste of David Warner. He was yes. Uh, Cynthia Gow as uh, Catherine. I think it's Kathleen. They never say her name in the movie. Dar, who's the Romulan representative. Uh, she was an award-winning reporter interestingly enough, and the first Asian-American to win Star Search in 1988. Oh, dang. Cool. That's cool. I'm glad that that's a bigger achievement than than this movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And uh, Charles Cooper, who plays the Klingon representative, General Cord, has been in a variety of television and films uh, from the 1950s to 2001. I didn't have time to go into every single one. Uh, there's also the bodybuilder person who I didn't write the name of down for some reason, who plays the female Klingon with muscles, and I love her. With muscles. Big and burly. Uh, did you forget Todd Bryant? Probably. I was trying to be very concise. Because we always go over. <laughs> uh, he uh, he played Captain Claw. Yeah, Captain Claw. <laughs> that other Klingon in this movie. <laughs> this is before they had Klingon names quite down. I don't even think they still have Which them is now, fine, yeah. But it's fine, yeah. Hey, so that's all the preamble. It's taken too long already. Let's go. <laughs> Off we go. Ah. So we're in the harsh deserts of... What the screen tells us is the planet Nimbus 3, the planet of galactic peace. Uh, it looks like a Mad Max set. Yes. <laughs> Get our poor guy digging holes. Digging holes for some reason. Yeah. yeah just, he's a moisture uh, farmer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all he has. It's all he's got, all right? In the, yeah, in the script that I was reading, it says, digging for water. It's like, how do we know this? What? <laughs> you didn't communicate yeah. that at all. Nope. <laughs> It's all he's got, all right? It's what he's it's all he's got. He's approached by what I'm going to call in in the rest of the thing a horse, but is a unicorn, which I just loved. He's approached by a large unicorn. So they put makeup on the horses. Yep. Nice. He grabs a homemade rifle, but the horseman doesn't think he's going to shoot him over a plane full of holes. Huh. That's like it's this all you got. Seriously, you think I'm going to steal this? Really? And he offers to take the digger's pain, and he agrees and feels a great wave of gratitude and whatever has been lifted from his heart. And the horseman asks the digger to join his cause because they need to get a starship to go find ultimate knowledge. And he also reveals himself to be a Vulcan before he starts laughing. It's the laughing Vulcan. Yep. And then we cut to dun dun dun. Isn't that a kid's book in one of the other series, The Laughing Vulcan? Yeah, well, I think so. Uh, Voyager? I I don't remember. Yeah. I remember um there's a there's a Ferengi book um that I that I used to read called uh, that's like the Ferengi Rules of Acquisition and there they mentioned Stork the Stuttering Vulcan which is like a <laughs> vaudevillian kind of act that uh that Ferengi used to do apparently. Oh my god. <laughs> that that's, that sounds both 
amazing but also terrible at the same time yeah it was like it, there was the the whole there was like a whole story in that book about like it was this two competing vaudevillian acts on Ferenginar where it was uh stork the stuttering vulcan and kang the incontinent klingon <laughs> who like were like wow. were like dueling vaudeville acts it was a whole thing it was a metaphor for capitalism and how like people try to stop the other other from stopping each other but it was it was a whole thing the star trek books get weird they do, and I love them for it. <laughs> so yeah, we cut to intro, and then we have super sweeping helicopter views of Yosemite, where Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Because he wants to make love to the mountain. Come on. <laughs> oh my gosh. Halfway up this giant cliff, Spock suddenly appears next to him. Well, he's... And I want to I want to point out because I do a bit of rock climbing. I don't usually do go outside, but I go to the rock gym. Have for several years. Um, what what Kirk is doing here is a process called free soloing, which is the most difficult and dangerous kind of rock climbing there is. You don't just run off and do this. Yeah. People yeah. who do this take <laughs> years to plan these things so that they don't die, and then they still often die. Yeah. Like you plan your plan your, your your route up, you know, get a uh, you know lots of workouts and things like that, so you know you're physically able to do it, and then your chances are still pretty slim. So you know, uh, if you ever watch, there's that. Have you ever watched that uh, documentary Free Solo? I think it won the Academy Award that year. I'm not 100. It was definitely nominated. It's a great movie about that. I would I would, I would actually really recommend it. It was one of the most like anxiety inducing documentaries i've ever seen and i definitely know it was nominated for a academy award for best doc that year i think it won but I'm not. and i'm i'm not 100 percent sure if this is a thing i don't know how the military works offhand but i feel like this is something that if one of your high-ranking officers was <laughs> doing you would kick him out of the army for being an idiot yeah yeah <laughs> you're putting invaluable uh, military assets at risk I'm just climbing up. Yes, you are far, too far too valuable for this. Yeah, massive sets. amounts of risk. Why do they not have safety equipment in this century? Yeah, it's like like Captain Kirk. Come on, come on. Imagine if this. Imagine if this is how Captain Kirk died. You know. Yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. Well, at least it was El Capitan. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Captain. You know. <laughs> Kirk is free soloing. Spock randomly appears next to him because he has rocket boots. Because of course he does. Why not? Mm -hmm. I want rocket boots. Yeah. I think we all want rocket boots. We do. It's a dream of humanity to have rocket boots. <laughs> In the future, they have rocket boots. The future! Even though rocket <laughs> boots are an objectively bad idea. Like, rocket jetpack, fine. Rocket boots would be so bad for your knees. Oh, yeah. I think you probably break your neck too rocket splits yeah oh god yeah. oh god yeah <laughs> so spock distracts kirk long enough for him to slip and fall because he's unsafely climbing a mountain huzzah free promotion <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're actually in the mirror universe <laughs> spock fortunately is able to uh use his rocket boots to fly down and catch kirk just before he hits the ground um also really makes me wonder how his rocket boots function because the rocket part of his rocket boots are at this point pointing upward and he still manages to hover somehow. I mean, uh, video game rules? <laughs> it does seem like. Yes. <laughs> Wait, this, this is all a holodeck, isn't it? Yeah. Then he turns yes. on no clip and 
So back on Nimbus 3, Kathleen, the Romulan representative, arrives at Paradise City. Take me out to the Paradise City with her. <laughs> yeah, there's no grass, and there's a three-titted cat girl who is pretty. I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, I kept thinking that she was one of the, the, the same species as um, uh, Dr. Ta'ana, Mares and Dr. Ta'ana in Lower Decks. Unless there's something those uniforms are really hiding. <laughs> Maybe. It's possible. <laughs> also, I I did have to look this up. Um, this movie with the three-breasted cat alien uh, came out one year, almost exactly one year, before Total Recall with the famous three-breasted bar uh, worker. So Fun. So there, there might have been inspiration. Yes, yeah, so they may have. There may have been inspiration from Star Trek V. I mean, it's a much better movie. I'll give it that. <laughs> Indeed. So she arrives at Paradise City to meet with Talbert and Cord, who are the Federation and Klingon representatives of this peace accord, respectively. Apparently, this is a planet that they all agreed to develop together, but then none of their governments put any resources into, and they just basically tricked a bunch of people who are ne'er-do-wells and possibly psychopaths to come here and created Mad Max World I think the specific uh, term was the dregs of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. I guess this is like the the origins of like Pandora from from the Borderlands series. Yeah, I could definitely. It's just see a that. bunch of crazy people in the desert. Yeah, I could totally see that. Like, give me my uh, handsome Jack. Well, well, you don't have a handsome Jack, but you have a cyborg who just arrives with his followers, and they attack a small shanty town, which is apparently the capital. And very quickly take over the place and take the representatives hostage. Oh, this is a, a a planet where weapons are banned, but everyone has weapons. So, I guess that just kind of happens then. Shrug. Never <laughs> underestimate people's resourcefulness and needing to shoot each other with things. Yes, we always like to, we do like to do that. I just we'll get to some of the implications of this, but like the fact that this planet exists is way too much about the Federation generally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> an empty uh, symbolic gesture to declare peace and forever and that no one actually wants to pay attention to. Yeah, it sounds like the Federation. Even the Federation. Sounds like the Federation, yeah. you know. <laughs> the Scotty and Uhura have been spending their time fixing the new Enterprise A, which is in a very sorry state, and Scotty's barely even got it in the most basic functions working up to his standards. Uh, there's going to be little time for repairs, however, because the Federation contacts the ship with a red alert, and the Enterprise must go to Paradise City and save the representatives because reasons, and now they need to recall all of the crew. Now, now I, I would like to point out here that the uh, the, the admiral here that's telling that's giving them the orders here is actually Harv Bennett. So Harv Bennett, I think we finally figured out who is trying to get Kirk and company killed in the Federation. It, it's the it's the uh, director, or uh, not the director, uh, the producer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is this a plot convenience? Yes, but it's handed down by the producer and one of the writers, so. Yeah, it's, it's very important. <laughs> it's literally just, it's literally the writer coming in and delivering a plot convenience. <laughs> Here, go do the thing. Have a movie. <laughs> the, on their shore leave, the rest of the crew, Chekhov and Sulu, are spending their time lost in the woods, apparently. <laughs> I mean, can you really be lost Why if not? you have a transporter lock on you at all times? Good point. 
Um, Ahura sends a shuttlecraft down because oh, their wait, transporter's wait, not working. Wait, 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 before we, before we, before we, before we skip over this, I would actually say, like, this, this, this I, wa- I actually want to uh, pause at this scene, because I actually really, I think that this is actually one of those scenes in this movie that I think is really one of the actually good scenes. I actually really mm-hmm. enjoy the bonding moment here between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and, like, the three of them sort of coming together. The reasons for it are ridiculous, but I do actually like, like, the lines where, uh, Kirk says, like, I always knew I was going to die alone, and them sort of bonding and, and sort of jokingly singing, row, row, row your boat. Like, this moment, I actually think, while the rest of the movie is terrible, I actually think that this scene is uh, is actually kind of a sweet little moment between the three different actors and, and shows them coming together. Agreed. I enjoy what they were trying to do. Having just binge-watched all of these movies, which I don't think is how they were ever meant to be viewed at all, there's a weird decline in the relationship writing between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy because it, it hits a really good high point around like like Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock have some incredibly well-written character interaction that I didn't remember from my older viewings. Mm. And I think it's where you get the solidified McCoy, Kirk, Spock friendship down really well. And then it's not quite as good as I remember in Voyage Home. And this one, they are really trying, and I want them to pull it off, but I just couldn't get into it, and row, row, row your boat is such a ridiculous thing to hang the plot of your movie on. Fair, fair. It is, well, it is. I, I'm not putting it in the context of, like, the whole movie, but <laughs> in this scene, I actually think it's just, I don't know, it just feels nice to have, like, a laid-back moment with these characters, because we, we rarely get that with them. And yeah, I definitely think it's definitely not the true. highest. I do like the laid backness. I do. Fi- I mean, it's part of the bad writing of the movie that's kind of funny. It's it's ridiculous to me that Spock at this point, for some reason, does not understand what beans and whiskey are. Yeah, that is definitely weird. Um, <laughs> well, he he was just dead, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, there's a little few gaps in his knowledge here or there. I also I do also enjoy the weird product placement of the like the uh, the marshmallow like gun that he has there yes. that apparently only holds three marshmallows and actually it was a real like thing that craft marshmallows made mm-hmm. by the way which is hilarious <laughs> in the future this is how all marshmallows will be delivered so we're cutting edge yeah it's like i don't know why plastic i mean maybe plastic bags go, but i don't know what like bag went out the window and like weird metal marshmallow gun <laughs> I always, even as a kid, read that thing as, like, not really a marshmallow storage device, but more of a marshmallow production tube. Ah. So, like, you'd have some sort of canister of sugar in there, and it would extrude a marshmallow and possibly be able to hold hundreds of the things. Yeah, like, give you, like, a fresh marshmallow. Like, that, that would actually be kind of clever. I don't, I don't think they had thought it that far through. <laughs> <laughs> Probably well, that not. That would be kind of awesome. Because yeah, the the thing that you could that would actually be kind of awesome. Just like make like infinite marshmallows in there, or marshmallows as they say. Um and uh, but yeah, no. The apparently the the craft thing that they sold, like you just shove the marshmallow in there, and, like it <laughs> shoots, shoots it out badly. Apparently. <laughs> what does this do? It holds three marshmallows and has a motor. Woo! <laughs> Dodge. <laughs> you can have a whole three s'mores. Well, there's three of them, three s'mores. That, that works. Is this is this when the food companies were getting in trouble for putting too much sugar in things? Like this is portion control. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that would that would be the only way that this makes sense. And just like weird gimmicky crap. It's just kind of funny. 
I mean, I'd use it just for the novelty of it, but that's me being a weirdo. <laughs> well, if we ever hang out together and go camping, one of us has to bring this thing. Yes, yes, yes. Hunt it down and bring it. I'm down for it. We will find one of these. <laughs> Excellent. So her does send down a shuttlecraft to get all the rest of the crew while they're in the middle of sleeping, because not only is the transporter broken, but Kirk very conveniently forgot his communicator. Whoops. Which also seems like a bad idea when you're going out in the middle of nowhere to climb a mountain by yourself. You're going to break your leg. You're going to wind up in a in a arm-cutting-off situation here, Kirk. <laughs> it would be logical, would say Spock. <laughs> <laughs> also, the Klingons have also received a distress call from their representative, and the captain is tired of shooting old Earth space junk. And is looking forward to seeing the Enterprise when he arrives at Nimbus 3. They blow up an old satellite, which at this point is... Like 500 years old. They're, they're literally shooting antiques. Yeah, the thing that's like Pioneer 10, maybe? I, I forgot to check this before the you know, recording. <laughs> it is in some ways metaphorical that our Klingons are more powerful than the analogy for V'ger thing going on here. I don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> sure. Someone's uh, giving this movie credit. Yeah, I say I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't give the movie having thought it that far out. Klingons is also something that's on Kirk's mind since he knows they may run into Klingons or other trouble. And he tries to explain how the ship is like falling apart at the seams and is not ready for doing literally anything. And even flying out of space dock may cause them to explode. But the admiral goes, "No, I want you to go because you is the movie hero. <laughs> you need to make the plot happen. Do it." I do appreciate that this is not the seventh time in a row that it is the only ship in the sector. Because the Excelsior is, like, right there. But they're busy with something, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're doing important... I mean, they're doing important thing. So on route, Spock reviews the Vulcan who perpetrated these kidnappings and sounds like someone that he used to know who was a gifted intelligent scholar that they all expected to be one of the best and brightest minds on Vulcan but he embraced emotion and started a cult I mean what, what else are you going to do when you have emotion you know Yeah so he was banished from Vulcan which is an in like Vulcan society is not looked into enough on these things but like you want to not join their weird super cultish dictatorial logic religion you literally get kicked off the planet Yep, that's a little awkward. Yeah, it's a it's a bit it's a bit much. I mean, it kind of to be fair, it kind of weirdly fits given what we know about the Romulans, but uh, and and also like what we know about like um, uh, uh, what we see in like the logic extremist sort of stuff that comes later on in Star Trek. So I mean, it's not so far off key that it rings is completely untrue, but it is a bit extreme. I mean, I think it makes sense for the culture we're presented with, but it's never questioned. Hmm. Indeed. Yeah, no one's ever like, oh, that's probably a bad thing for them to do. No one's like, hey, we're the close, we're the two closest Federation allies, humans and Vulcans, and we kind of purport freedom and equality and all that good old American crap, and uh, y'all are kind of religious fascists, you know that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, Enterprise gets into, like, of all the shows to, to address this in a, in a good way, a Star Trek Enterprise is the one that actually got into that pretty pretty detailedly and that's about that's about the only other time mm. and it's easy to forget that in between all the scenes of T'Pol wiping goo off of herself yeah i mean you you got to enjoy that i guess <laughs> goo 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 oh yes and uh we, we you know mind melds are banned goo 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 there we go <laughs> 
Hey, the last two seasons of Enterprise are good, actually. I will fight yes. for Yes. <laughs> That's going to be your next long video essay. I mean, it's true. It's true. So this Vulcan dude was banished from Vulcan, never to be heard from again until now, apparently. So they arrive at the planet of galactic peace, and Kirk and company head down in a shuttle landing some distance from the settlement in order to avoid detection. Uh, since it's going to take them a really long time to get there on foot... They need to steal horses from a patrol party. They need a distraction. What would you do if you needed to distract a patrol party? Uh, I mean, I would immediately pull up my fans and do a dance. I mean, what else would you do? Yeah. Yeah, this leads to her super famous fan dance. Uh, I'd I'd get get dubbed over as a sang too myself, but you know. (laughs) I think my main questions here are, where did this music coming from? And where did they get palm leaves? I mean, I guess the implication, I don't know where the palm leaves came from. The implication, I guess, is like, I don't know where the instrumental came from, but like Uhura's always been like, from like the original series, has always been a singer. So I guess he's like, just yeah, really I saw that. Him. I can see that this is her singing. That makes sense. I mean, it makes sense but... in so much as any of this makes sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so creepy that Shatner wrote this into the freaking movie. Yeah, there's definitely that. And, and I mean, this is just goes to like the weird uh like sexualization of women that star trek really especially around this time i mean it was always there it's been there since the original series but especially around this era like with tng kind of being on at the same time and this is like yeah yeah star trek i mean all the way up through star trek enterprise the women just are definitely hyper sexualized they so are yeah so i was just reading a very interesting article on the intersection of miniskirts and feminism in the mid to late 60s early 70s which was which gave an interesting take on the uniforms at least yeah i mean grace that was that was an argument that like there was an interest there's interesting sort of stuff you can go into with that where um uh i believe nichelle nichols wasn't super keen on the the miniskirts in the original series but grace lee whitney who played human Rand, was actually very much for them um, was actually very much like, oh, I liked showing my legs. I liked showing them off, which was like, could speak to like the feminism of the time and, and being able to show more skin was sort of feminist idea. But then there's also the whole bit about like Roddenberry would used to, Gene Roddenberry uh, supposedly used to have all the girls that appeared on Star Trek like come into his office so he could like watch them like hot. Like, okay. Well, he had to check the costume e- fittings. Exactly. That was- yeah. So I was like, okay. So yes, I'm not trying to defend the show oh, no, for I, feminism. I, I, I just I thought that was a very interesting thing I read recently. It, there's definitely an argument to be made that like the costumes on the original series were definitely like in some ways could be seen as like really pushing the envelope in a positive way. Um, and I, I think that's a fair a fair assessment. But it's it's a much it's a very complicated topic on. But it's got nothing on the man skirts in TNG. I mean, I am here for that. I love those. I love, I love the man skirts. Mm-hmm. Whenever, if we all go to a convention, we are all wearing the shift. <laughs> I think we've agreed now. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but yeah, no, I yeah, this this fan dance is is just evidence of that unfortunate part of Star Trek history that is like the sexualization of women that really, really doesn't even really doesn't even fully go away and i mean i'm still around because our society just still does it but really doesn't like fully like get better until star trek discovery i i mean honestly even they've done some mixed yeah. things yeah i think <laughs> i think star trek discovery season two would even be where i draw the line because that even season one there was some sexual yeah but in season two onwards i think with um considering they actually have a female showrunner 
It's quite mm-hmm. a bit. That's always better. Mm-hmm. You know, let's get rid of some of this male gaze nonsense here and uh, stop objectif- objectifying people. Mm-hmm. Hooray. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, back in the 80s, uh, this Uh-oh. objectification <laughs> does draw out the particularly yeah. thirsty guards. I mean, when I mean they're they're digging for water and they're digging for sex. You know, they're they're all <laughs> thirsty in every sense of the word. There's a freaking dubbed line in here where they just talk like, "Is that a woman?" <gasps> It's like, uh, yes, those exist on your planet. You know that, There's right? like a three-breasted cat lady right behind it. <laughs> so soon they are able to capture all these dudes, I guess, and steal their horses and ride into town. Um, none of any, Only Kirk apparently knows how to ride a horse, and they make some random jokes about it, even though everyone's riding the horse is fine. Being someone who does not know how to ride a horse, that who has had to ride several horses because of friends I grew up with, the horses don't like it when you don't know how to ride the horse. Yeah, uh, yep. horses are terrifying, I should say. I went horseback riding for the first time last Christmas, uh, and, you know, it was fun, but horses are scary, scary animals, in my opinion. <laughs> They're large, panicky animals that can kill you out of fear or ignorance, or malice. Mm-hmm. They have so many reasons to kill you. I mean, I was in, uh, uh, when I was horseback riding, we were, like, in all in a line with other horses, and the horse in front of me just started, like, uh, bucking a little bit because my horse got a little bit too close and like freaking out. I'm like, oh god, I don't want to be here. It was, it was <laughs> uh, I've uh, it was I, I've had a bad uh, experience with uh, horseback riding in a line as well, though it was more disgusting than buck uh, than danger. Mm, I, can, mm. I can already get it what you're going at there, and yeah, that yeah, fun. I'm sorry, horse people. I know there's there's a big divide here. Oh, but. like for sure. Like I understand people who love horses and everything. For me, as someone who does not have that training or anything, it's it. I I find horses mildly terrifying yeah i fully admit it's because i have no idea what i'm doing but yeah, yeah same yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so it's we're not poo-pooing the the whole uh you know exercise but it is a uh it's not for us sort of thing <laughs> exactly exactly anyways so the crew is led into town with no problems because they look like the people i guess and but then a fight does break out almost immediately. Um, some notable standouts. There's a rocket launcher that, you know, is a movie rocket launcher, so it doesn't really do much, but there is a rocket launcher. Uh, Spock nerve pinches a horse. <laughs> Just hilarious. They all have shields for some reason that block lasers, and uh, Kirk fights the three-breasted Catwoman and dumps her into what I thought was a fish tank, but on second viewing it was like a waterized pool table. It is literally a pool table. Oh, I missed that somehow. Oh, no. <laughs> and apparently just being tossed in, it means she's unconscious or dead or something this like that. This is how cats work, Isix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. This is why cats won't touch water. <laughs> it kills them instantly. Speaking of someone who has a, currently has a cat on my lap right now. <laughs> Can I? Yeah, he, said, he, he jumped up a minute ago. I knew we were talking about him. <laughs> do you have three? So y'all talking about cats? Do you, do you want to see? He's he's a he's a boy cat. Do you want to see a little three-breasted cat lady, Newt? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh boy! It's like, wait, where did the other three breasts go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, le- that's less breasts for me. What are you talking about? <laughs> we're terrible. We're, we're, we're terrible people. I mean, it's the movie. It's the movie. Blame the movie. This is what I watched as a child. <laughs> This explains a lot about my brain. <laughs> the, the crew rescue the delegates, but they've joined Cybok. Uh-oh. He took their pain. Yeah. Hmm. But uh, damn, your son but an inevitable betrayal or something. Hmm. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Spock does now get to confront Cybok, which I 
I'm sorry. I have to say this name so much. Cybok is a stupid name. <laughs> it's one thing I'll never. It's one thing I'll never forgive Star Trek Discovery for is they never brought Cybok into that show. They should have. They should. They should have. If I recall correctly, Cybok was supposed to have been exiled when Spock was really young. Mm-hmm. So maybe you know he was exiled before Michael joined the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brave New Worlds has time. Yeah, I mean, they could they probably they could probably be able to do it in that show. I, I would hope so, but we'll see. I don't know if they yeah. ever will. Cybok asks Spock to join him, and Spock asks Cybok to surrender and be arrested. Um, neither is that interested, really. <laughs> yeah. It's like, eh, nah, nah, bro. Uh, back in orbit, though, the Klingons have arrived. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared. Whatever we're going to do. They immediately cloak and wait for their chance to attack the Enterprise, which notices them immediately and is on high alert. The cloaking devices in this era don't do much. They're always seen. Um, That works. Cybok takes the crew and his men to the shuttlecraft to go back up to the Enterprise, but because the Klingons are waiting to attack, they can't lower the shields and track to the ship in safely and do the 20-minute docking sequence thing that apparently is standard practice. We can't have sweeping vistas like in Star Trek, the motion picture right now. We're kind of on a crunch, guys. Come on. We got to go find God. Come on. Come on. Move it. (laughs) God waits for no one. Cybok reluctantly lets uh, Kirk formulate a plan to get on board so that they don't have to keep the shields down for very long. So he orders plan B as a barricade, which everyone somehow knows what he means all of a sudden. Thought this was the most unclear way to give a plan. Captain Kirk, everyone knows the plans before he even says them. Come on. He's that good a commander. They lower the shields. The shuttle flies in by itself way too fast and crashes into some nets that they've got in there for this exact circumstance. Woo. Wee crash. I do like Sulu's confidence. Sulu's the best. I do think that in any other movie, this would have been an interesting sequence. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. It's just so a side thing in this one. It's amazing, really. It's just like, this is your big set piece thing. You blew up a model. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Saw pictures of, of this production. They're pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it was probably fun to do. So with the crew on board, now the Enterprise jumps to warp, barely escaping the Klingon attack. Cybok doesn't really want to enjoy this small victory, though, because he threatens Kirk with a gun and demands they change course. Uh, there's a brief scuffle. Spock takes the gun, but can't bring himself to shoot Cybok, and so the three are carted off to the brig while Uhura and Sulu are given the Cybok special treatment of pain deduction. I wonder what their pain was. Yeah, I'm curious. I want to know what Chekhov's and Uhura's pain Something about Russia? Yeah, Russia's just not in charge. That's a big pain. <laughs> I do remember there was a whole lot of stuff behind the scenes where um, a lot of the cast members like, we wouldn't betray Captain Kirk, and so we're like, kind of upset about that whole story development. And in fact... Um, uh, Spock and McCoy were also supposed to betray Kirk, but the actors actually had enough power to be like, no, we're not. Why do you want to make us the bad guys, Shatner? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder. This would be kind of undoing all our uh, d- you know, character development friendship and such here, so that would be a terrible move. So I'm going to write this movie. Everyone yeah. in the cast betrays me. It's like, um, you got some issues, <laughs> dude. Yeah, you got some stuff you need to work out. Maybe not in a script. Yeah. So Kirk is furious that Spock didn't kill Cybok when he had the chance, but Spock chooses this time to reveal Cybok is his half-brother. Oh. Dun-dun-dun. And he had to choose between his brother and his ship. This is not a logic decision. Yeah. Cybok could have been shot in the leg. Though yeah. it is, like, disrupt or something like, like that. Yeah, there's so. numerous things Maybe. he could have done, you know? <laughs> so Cybok takes the bridge with pain sharing. Everyone's 
fine. We're good. He, f- he feels your pain, man. He's like Bill Clinton. So he says that they are going to set out to find Shakari, a planet at the center of the galaxy, beyond the great barrier that no ship has ever passed before. This is the first we're hearing of any of this. There's a barrier inside and outside. The, the galaxy is like a big donut. There's a barrier in the middle and there's a barrier at the edge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... But the barrier in the middle keeps in the, all those giant, you know, floating heads and, you know, cosmic entities. And we're going to meet one this movie, of course, but uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of others that we run into at various times, you know? Yep, just all filled with that. I mean, isn't in real science, like, the center of the galaxy filled with a lot of black holes, or am I... It's a supermassive oh. black hole, as I understand, but I'll let Physics Man explain. Yeah, there is a Sagittarius A star, which is a supermassive black hole. There's a number of other black holes uh, in that general vicinity as well, uh, as well as a lot of red giants and uh, very old stars of various sorts. So it's generally not a very good place. An area that's very conducive to you know life being a thing. It's like it's, it's, not, it's not a nice place. Just put it that way. Yeah. No. My favorite fact that I know about the center of our galaxy is that every now and then a black hole of that size can emit a giant gamma laser type thing in a random direction that's just going to destroy everything in its path. Yep. Fun. So uh, let's make sure that doesn't happen to us. We have no power over this. (laughs) I mean, mean, the fact that we haven't all died just from some random crap happening in the universe is shocking. Mm -hmm. We're we're about due. Oh, well, it's like we're doing a good job so far. It's fine. fine. Just remember, all these giant cosmic-y things will kill literally everyone on the planet before we even know it's happening. Yay! Yep. (laughs) So at least we'll not suffer. Anyway, back in the brig. (laughs) (laughs) After that depressing moment. (laughs) There's several failed attempts to break out of the newly designed cell that apparently Spock tested himself. Which means, yeah, he did a a great job. (laughs) Except he didn't anticipate Scotty blowing a hole in the wall. I mean, Hmm. no one anticipates the Scottish... (laughs) (laughs) Or a Scotsman with a plasma torch or explosives or something. Whatever Scotty's doing here. Yeah. <laughs> just exploded. Whatever, whatever, he's, whatever he wants to do. No one expects it. Wait wait, wait a moment. Is, is he secretly Demo Man? Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. Is that bagpipes? Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> he just did carry a bagpipe. Over. He should just have a, a bagpipe with a phaser on the front of it. Fan art. <laughs> go. <laughs> So now they have to make their way from the brig to the forward observation room by climbing an empty turbo shaft. Uh, of course, they're very soon pursued by the rest of the crew, now following Cybok. But Spock, instead of climbing up, runs off to get his rocket boots. Even though the three of them are too heavy for the rocket boots initially, he does manage to pull a Willy Wonka and make it to the top level really fast when they almost splat themselves in the ceiling. I was going to say, that's how physics works. It's, it's all, it's... It can barely carry three people. That's why all of a sudden it just shoots to the top. <laughs> Turbo boosters activate. Uh, also, we discover there's like 7,000 decks on the ship too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I've played Kerbal Space Program enough to know that, yes, your engines barely can't lift the thing. Then you turn on the rocket boosters. Then it all explodes. Yep. <laughs> yep. That makes sense to me. So Kirk uses the emergency communicator to make contact with Starfleet, or so he thinks, because it's the Klingons speaking perfect English. Because hmm. yeah. they're tricksy like that. We'll, we'll have to pull the, uh, the same trick on them next movie. Mm-hmm. Now they know where the Enterprise is going. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. 
to the death zone. The Cybok does find them and tries to explain he's just trying to find the origin place of the galaxy that's the center of all monomythologies. We're pulling a monomyth here. And he thinks it's the center of the galaxy. He then demonstrates his pain-relieving mind telekinesis on McCoy, who feels guilt over letting his father die weeks before there was a cure for the condition. Which, which, to be fair, this is also another scene that I actually... This is the other scene in the movie that I actually kind of like. It doesn't go anywhere yes. and doesn't do anything for the plot of the movie other than just, like I guess, explain how Cybex powers work, which is also weird because then it's like, oh, you just show them their trauma and then they're like, I'm going to follow you to, the, to, to God. Um, yep. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really know how exactly that works. But this DeForest Kelly is a legitimately good actor, mm-hmm. and they never let him do anything. Exactly. That that's my <laughs> that's the argument that I always make about this movie. It's like this is the only movie that actually gives uh, McCoy some a, a, a character moment of his own. He's always playing backup yes. to Spock and Kirk, and this is literally the only movie where he actually gets like his own character. Now, uh, I think as as far as the mechanics of this whole pain relief thing is that it's you know, he he pulls up a moment that has always been sort of damaging to you at least as far as you're concerned is, uh, and then you know effectively pulls a all right we we've shared this together and now I forgive you you don't have to worry about this it's okay sort of sort of thing there but like more powerful than that somehow yeah. Like, Oh, no, squared. There's definitely a trauma reading of this. I don't agree with the current neuroscience around some trauma theory, but there is a trauma theory reading of this you could do. Like exposure therapy sort of thing? Uh, yeah, something along those lines. There's, I'll very briefly go. There's a, there's a theory in, in the trauma-centered approach to psychology where they say that the trauma is stored, trauma, traumatic memories are stored in a different part of your brain that you can't access as narrative memory. So bringing them up in a safe environment and reintegrating them into your narrative memory flow takes them out of the part of your memory storage brain that makes them traumatic and uncontrollable. I've seen some varying reports on how useful that can be. Uh, exposure therapy does uh, has some bad science behind it. There's a whole freaking thing, but that is mm-hmm. the current trauma theory. It's interesting, but yeah. whether or not we agree with this is a completely different thing that would take me another hour to get into. Yes, fair. McCoy feels so relieved that he wants to join Cybok, and now Spock, who sees his father's disappointment at having a half-human son, but Spock's dealt with his shit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I'm I'm all together, you know. Yeah, it's between this movie and the last movie. I was uh, I've I've, I've done a lot of soul searching, you know. And it's like uh, no, 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 no. Cybok, you you don't know me very well, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, McCoy's like, well, uh, Spock's not betraying Kirk. Maybe I won't either. Okay. So that has no effect on Spock because, you know, Spock's dealt with his own mental health. Good job. And then finally, Kirk, who flat out refuses to try because his trauma is what makes him a man. Um, I, th- I think this is where we uh, quote uh, Linkar and say, I am a man or something like that. This is an interesting one because... He's like, now you, and Kirk's like, no. And so I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I respect your choices. <laughs> oh, well, uh, you're a, a very agreeable madman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But now it's too late to do anything because they're at the barrier anyway. So uh, Cybok actually returns command to Kirk because you know, they're at the, at the barrier and there's nothing else to do. <laughs> uh, they get through the barrier with absolutely no trouble because it was all in your head. 
Well, that's cool. It's just an illusion <laughs> that no one ever tried to get through before. Hmm. Wait a moment. Are we at Mag- Magus 2 now? <laughs> so they find a planet beyond the barrier. Uh, and now that they're here, uh, Kirk says we may as well go down. You know, we're here. Why not? Might as well. So they still use the shuttle because transporters are, you know, broadly broken. Planet is mostly barren, but they do find a valley where the ground shakes, skies does dark, pillars shoot up from the ground, and a bright light appears to them claiming to be God. Now, would you classify this as a pillar of fire or pillar of smoke? I would say... I don't know. That's a good question. Sort of a bloom effect. Yeah. The best the VFX department in 10 minutes after their rock monster didn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it changes itself to appear as human with a large beard, you know, Abrahamic god-looking thing, uh, to say, this is human's expectation of me. His beard's bigger than mine. God's quite excited to find out about the starship they used and wants to get on the starship. And Kirk goes, wait a minute, God. Yeah, God. If that's your real name. <laughs> Jesse, go ahead and give the line. <laughs> what, what does God need with a starship? <laughs> he says it twice, which I always forget. He says it. The, the, the line is so good, it's said twice in this movie. Yeah. It's like, what's yeah. God need with the starship? Wait, d- you didn't hear me. My brilliant insight. <laughs> <laughs> what does God need with a starship? You don't ask God. <laughs> <laughs> so God's miffed and uh, shoots Kirk with lightning. I mean, fair. Spock is like, hey, but he didn't answer his question. He also gets shot with lightning. And then McCoy goes, wait a minute. I don't believe in a vengeful God. We're in the New Testament now. Yeah, so uh, screw you, Old Testament God. We're we're getting out of here. (laughs) God cracks a bit and uh, admit he's been imprisoned here by the barrier for eternities. And Cybok is finally convinced that this God may be not really the person he thought he was. And asks to share his pain, and then goes and shares his pain and gives the Enterprise a chance to shoot it with a torpedo. Sweet. Uh, aren't torpedoes, like, full of antimatter and super explosions? Torpedoes do they? whatever you need torpedoes to do. Yeah, torpedoes are, say, Otherwise, they should all be dead. Torpedoes are plot devices. Come on. Come on. All right. The crew <laughs> barely escapes, and in the confusion, no one sees that the bird of prey is approaching. What makes it worse is it doesn't seem like God got killed all the way. Uh-oh. I mean, if you're going to try and kill God, you better try and kill him all the way. Also, uh, now the shuttlecraft is inoperative. Scotty's repaired the transporter, and Kirk orders them to beam uh, Spock and McCoy up immediately because it's not full power. Of course, as soon as they're on board, the Klingons attack and damage the transporter again, leaving hey. Kirk alone to deal with God. <laughs> Kirk versus God, Fight! The uh, Klingon captain calls to demand Kirk be handed over, but Spock convinces the Klingon representative to order the bird of prey around because, you know, you're a general or something. Do your dang job. So they get the bird of prey to save Kirk and blast God in the face. (laughs) I mean, sounds about right. So torpedoes don't work, but disruptors do. (laughs) They beam Kirk aboard so that the captain can be ordered to apologize for trying to kill him. And Spock reveals himself in the gunner chair because he shot God. Spock killed God. (laughs) What a twist. I love it. Kirk goes in for a hug, but Spock is not into PDA. Mm. (laughs) Not in front of the clay. Another another great line. So Spock couldn't kill Kennedy, but it could kill God. Got it. Yep. That's about right. The Enterprise hosts a reception in the end where the humans, Klingons, and Romulan representatives are all getting along. 
for once. It's great. Kirk made some point about how God is in all of us and found family, etc. And they all return to camping where they're finally able to figure out how to sing Row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Row, merrily, row, merrily, row, merrily, row your boat merrily, gently life down the stream. I was like, I was hoping you two would join me. It needed to happen. I figured it out. <laughs> I tried to, but I tried to jump at the same time as Gep, but I'm sorry. <laughs> you ruined You ruined you everything. Ruined it. You ruined, so ruined it. You're the Spock of row, row, row your boat. <laughs> I'll, I'll get out my, my harp and uh, pl- you just play that. it. <laughs> yeah. you, you spocked it. <laughs> Would you like uh, marshmallow? Yep. So that, yep. Final Frontier, t- almost tanked the franchise years before Enterprise did. Yep, or Nemesis. Well, I always I always argue Nemesis was more the show that killed Star Trek, or more the thing that killed Star Trek than Enterprise. I agree, Nemesis was yep. horrible. They should not. They should stop trying to make movies in the middle of writing strikes. It always goes bad. Yeah, no, I, I, my, this is my whole argument on that. Is like, Star Trek Nemesis did so badly that it killed all enthusiasm for the franchise, which sort of like trickled down to Enterprise as well. Which the first two seasons of Enterprise didn't help, but mm-hmm. it was definitely better at that at the point that Nemesis went up. So, though, also speaking of, this movie was also bad because they tried to write it in the middle of some union strikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I recall reading something about uh, them having lots of trouble with getting uh, equipment to Yosemite, and they're like. Yeah, we're going to have to, like, kind of almost black market this because otherwise we're not going to have a movie. So. Yep. <laughs> Including one of the production trucks mysteriously exploding. Whoops. Also, was the uh, Star Trek 2009 also written during the writer's strike as well? I think so. Or shot during... I think it was either in 2009 or Into Darkness. I believe it was 2009. And that actually came out decent, so there you go. Maybe we should pay the writers so that we stop having these issues. Yeah, that would be a whole thing. As a writer, I mean, there's, there's our... I'll endorse that. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's our. I mean, this is uh, not the writers. There's more cast and crew and everything. But uh, there's a, another current uh, potential strike on the horizon going on right now. So indeed. Oh yeah, because of the pandemic stuff. Mm-hmm. So. And also, and also, workers having to work like, uh, 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 just in general, having to work like twelve-hour days without break or whatever. Yeah, well. I was reading like, about the, that. It's insane. <laughs> so uh, yeah, as someone who has worked some of those twelve-hour days, uh, yeah, it's not, and had roommates who worked even worse. Uh, it's uh, yeah. So uh, the, the important lesson is pay your workers, people. Come on. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. But that's capitalism. But anyways, that's beside the point. It Star is. Trek The Final Frontier. <laughs> so I didn't remember this movie very well before I watched it again. This is the first time I'd watched it in years. Um, Cybox, not that bad. No. <laughs> you say begrudgingly. I mean, it's just like thinking about it. The whole movie is supposed to be about this insane cult leader dude who... who like coerces people into following him and then takes them to their false god and Kirk saves the day. But if you actually look at the narrative arc, Simon shows up on this abandoned world, helps all of these people become okay with themselves in a somewhat ambiguous way. But then we later see that this is something that people consent to. He respects the decision if they don't want to. They obviously aren't brainwashed because both McCoy and Spock who went through this thing decide not to join him and then as soon as he realizes that the god he was following isn't who he thought he was he sacrifices himself to save everyone yeah yeah he's a decent dude all things considered yeah you know I guess the the big issue is that you know he's Trixie I guess I guess and then at the end the he's like issuing in a new era of galactic peace single-handedly 
it's like, hey, you know, we, we brought everyone together and they're like hanging out and drinking together. And, uh, you know, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I also was like curious, like, how the hell did he even find out about Shakari? You know, like, what was that? What was going on there? It does seem like there must have been some sort of God visions happening. Probably, but it's never. It's, it's never, never really shown. I'm actually kind of surprised, given the current like online mental health uh, self care boom we're having at the minute, that this movie hasn't gotten a resurgence as a like representation of your mental health things, because that seems to be what Cybok is doing, and the the entire narrative of like the representatives are basically if you deal with your past trauma you can issue in an era of peace like all war political differences and social problems are caused by not dealing with your own personal traumatic past i mean there's probably something to be said about that that this movie doesn't like it's interesting but like this movie like this movie i think like wants to be interested in bigger ideas and does not actually address them it's very similar to nemesis in that way except for this movie i think is at least a little bit um like a little bit more fun in that sense but like nemesis starting nemesis is that same problem where the ostensibly that whole movie is about nature versus nurture but just like kind of gestures at it and never actually explores it in any, yeah. in any meaningful way i feel like nemesis is what happens when you write a movie like this but you have the budget for all the special effects you want so you're not kind of required to trim it down to just these bare essentials. Because, like, we've, we, there was a lot of, we've talked about, like, the production problems on this. There were also, like, a lot of budgetary issues. The movie, like, was barely able to be made in budget. They were really, really rushing. None of the special effects functioned. Which is weird considering that Voyage Home was like the most successful, still is, I think, uh, in terms of this uh, inflation, mm-hmm. um, is the most successful Star Trek movie. So you'd think the next one after it, they would have given a decent decent budget. I know you would think so, but they kept decreasing the budget on these things. I mean, I guess they're like, you made it for less money and it's still doing well. Here, take less. I guess it's one of those like sort of like things like, I guess, uh, limitations breeds innovation, which can be true, but not in this case. I mean, it still made the obligatory for movies double its production budget. So it's not like it was a massive financial flop, but it didn't make as much all the money as the other movies did. Yep. You you make enough money to to, to justify a, a solid sequel uh, well, we're going to cut your budget. You don't make enough money to justify a solid sequel. We're going to cut your budget. Do anything else. We're going to cut your budget. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I do think that this movie gets a bit interesting. If you do look at it as like Shatner's Kirk fan fiction. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, Kirk, <laughs> Kirk is like weird action hero, dude. It's very strange how much else it, is incompetent. It's really weird how much it really swings between Kirk is the most competent Superman ever to Kirk can't do anything and needs to be saved by his friends. Which, like, I do like as a message that you need strong friendships, and that is one thing that I've always... Well, I don't know. I have some mixed feelings on the uh, the Kirk-Spock romance after watching all of these things. But I was al- I've yeah. always been mildly critical of the, like male male slash stuff that you've been slash fiction stuff that you get with these series because i want there to also be room for you know strong straight male friendships which is something that i feel like we're missing a lot and trying to have a like a movie that is about the extreme importance of very close male friendships is something that you don't often get anymore i do wish they'd pulled it off a little better yeah i mean i'm i mean i 
so I have actually a few things to say on that. It's like I am as someone who is a very much a Kirk slash Spock shipper. I totally hear what you're saying. Like we do need to see much more male, uh, positive male friendships, and I don't think like necessarily one has to come at the expense of the other in terms of. Like, I don't think they necessarily do, and I do want to say, having viewed all of these things like in close succession now, with more of like an adult mindset, I it's in there. The the bisexual Kirk. And the Kirk-Smock relationship is in the text of the things. This is not something people are making up after the fact. Yeah, no, it's you can definitely read the tension. I mean, I, I still always go back to the episode um, uh, 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 Shore Leave, where, like, Kirk is expecting to be getting a back rub from Spock. And clearly, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like, very clear. Yep. Um, but regardless, yeah, it's like, I don't think that, that one needs to come at the expense of the other. Like, I think, like, people can enjoy it. And, like, if you, like, for me, it's like, I do enjoy reading into the, the, romantic relationship of kirk and spock and as you say it's definitely in there but if you also want to have someone who is if you're someone who doesn't want to read that into there i think that's totally fine too art is meant to be interpretive and so i always i always get i always and i weren't i'm not saying that you're saying this but i always get my feathers uh kind of rustled a little bit when people are like how dare you uh, ship these characters we can't we need to we need to make sure that it's a positive male it's like we can enjoy these things in different ways and it's totally fine it was the similar there was a similar discourse around uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier from the Marvel movie. That was uh, very much the same sort of idea. It's like these things don't need to be at the expense of one another. Agreed. Now, I guess as far as my own feelings uh, there, that maybe that we could also have a a weird combo uh, view of how their relationship works over the, over time. That maybe they were a romantically involved couple at some point, but more just a friendship at another point. And yeah. that and because of how the production had to be at the time, we can't really get the explicit uh, material for that, but we can maybe sort of hint at it in some way that they were very good friends during this period, but they're actually more than that at this other period. Um which I'd say yeah, actually argue that you know more during the original series they're more romantically involved, while in uh, you know movie era they're more just friendship. Yeah, as someone who is who is close friends with many of my exes, I can definitely see that. See, we can we can bring everyone together just like this movie. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's another one of those things. Is like I I do like the idea of like friendship brings us together and and the the idea of it but again it's just never elucidated on clearly or like actually represented by the text of the film all that much like again it's like gestures at it but it does and it's an it's an odd one to look back on now because the they have a very strong and explicitly stated found family narrative in this movie which mm. now is something that you read as a particularly queer phenomenon like the idea of the found family in LGBT circles as for people who like for one reason or another cannot really like have their family of origin in the same way as other people. And that being a found family is a very, very important cultural thing in queer and LGBT communities. Um, looking back on it, it's interesting to see something from the late 80s doing a found family kind of working man idea it's basically a men who put so much into their job and careers they can't have a traditional family and so have to manufacture their own found family in the workspace yeah what was a, there was a movie i just watched recently that kind of leaned into that uh it was more recent but i can't remember um oh 
Uh, actually, a really wonderful film that I would recommend to both of you called Riders of Justice, starring Mads Mikkelsen. It's a Danish film that's kind of like taken, but like actually more depthful mm. and, and actually like thoughtful. It's a, it's a basically Mads Mikkelsen Danish taken that is actually much better at like talking about trauma and how we try to just like find meaning after trauma. Um, but the whole end bit of that movie is like finding a found family can help you sort of like overcome like tra- trauma and you it's not about finding meaning it's not about finding meaning in trauma it's about finding meaning in your life to help you through the trauma um, which I feel like would have actually been an interesting theme for this movie now that I'm thinking about it, it's like actually that like like I, go and watch basically what I'm saying is going watch go and watch Writers of Justice and 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 then say like oh that could have been a better version of Final Frontier. <laughs> yeah. Because I like that, because it is the same sort of idea of like the working man's um, uh, family, and I mean, like this is something interestingly, like if we want to talk about Shatner's writing, if we want to do a deep dive on Shatner and his his writing ability, um, I mean, I've read all of his Star Trek novels that he did, and he does much the same thing. There's definitely like a, a an over importance Mary suing of of Captain Kirk as a character. Like he did three trilogies of characters. Uh, three trilogies of Star Trek novels. The first trilogy is all about Mary suing Captain Kirk and bringing him back from the dead, and he's perfect in every way. The second trilogy is, uh, and I kid you not, the second trilogy is we learn the entire universe and galaxy was made to give birth to Captain Kirk so he could also save the galaxy. Um, <laughs> oh God! That is the story. That is the explicit story of that of that uh, that book, uh, that book trilogy. And then the third trilogy is his son is Space Jesus. Uh, which again, not kidding. That is the explicit text of that story. But uh, setting us so that, so you can see the elements of that in this uh, this final frontier thing. But there's also like now that you sort of explicitize that there is definitely that sense of found family in those books too. Because the whole thing is like he's jumped forward in times to Picard era, and he still finds his family with Scotty still alive, McCoy still alive at that time, Spock still alive at that time, and still finds them, and also finds family with like. Picard's crew and, and, and Picard's uh, friends and everything. So there is like this, there's this recurrent theme in his writing of found family and the over-aggrandizement of himself as like the patriarch of that family. So it's kind of an, an interesting sort of thing is like he loves found family, but he also likes to be the center of the family sort of thing that's in his writing. Which is also an interesting one. Like I was saying, found family being associated with queer cultures especially now but it always you know was in the underground even though nobody was talking about it in the 80s the the fact that shatner has been so outspoken in his rejection of queer interpretations of star trek but he still wants to be the center of a all-male found family situation i think that probably just speaks a little bit to like inherent homophobia that people have i think it does and i'm not trying to read into anything with shatner himself but the dissidence that i see people getting between wanting to uphold star trek in this way and the blatant homophobia of one of its central figures it's always kind of frustrating for me honestly yes i mean (laughs) i mean this is a this is it's a discourse that like even today like um I don't know how much you do. You two watch Lower Decks? Yes, I haven't gotten a chance yet. Well, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, this isn't really a spoiler. It's just a thing that happened. There is a scene in the most recent Lower Decks where uh, one of the male characters is very explicitly having like very explicit sex in the middle of an orgy. Um, it is, it is a, it is the image is very explicit. Um, and and it's meant to be like a one-off joke. 
uh, sort of thing, and I think it was fine. I could understand some people thinking it was a bit too far, but it is meant to be a, like sort of a one-off joke sort of thing. And on Twitter, in certain places that are more toxic fans, they, that image was going around uh, of that, that picture, being like, oh, look at the, how dumb Star Trek is, uh, and look how gross and stupid the current modern Star Trek is. Um, kind of using it and insulting, and it kind of just delved into that home and like kind of inherent homophobia that I think a lot of certain parts of the fan base just don't want to address and like are forgetting the fact that like as we said before, like Star Trek has always been sexualizing of of women, like it's very much hypersexualized women and objectified women quite often from the very inception of the show and most especially during this era and the Rick Berman era of of Star Trek. Um, and so when you sort of get into that being a male centered thing and us being looking at men, um, in a sexualized way, people are like, ew, gross, uh, sort of instantaneously. And I think that that's, it, it's just, it, it, I think it's an interesting phenomenon that a certain segment of the fan base, typically often the fan base that also is yelling about Gene's vision and, uh, and, um, and oh, the, how perfect older Star Trek was, uh, is the same sort of thing. But, um, it, it's just like not there's none of the self-analysis of like this push to like ew gay icky gay uh like male bodies icky but also like recognizing male friendship being important and and sort of like it's an interesting sort of like level that we're we're that this that star trek has always kind of danced around because i feel like one of the positive things about star trek is it has always shown like really strong and beneficial male friendships i mean throughout all of its iterations i i can like you could think of like uh data and picard date are uh, picard and Riker. even um you can think of uh, uh kim and uh paris and voyager um uh bashir and o'brien and dc science so that's always kind of been there it is a weird one on i think looking at it in a modern context on older star treks like they re like they did really over sexualize the female characters even into next generation and especially enterprise like all the way through but it's a one of the reasons that the over sexualization in enterprise comes off as so blatant and odd for so many people i feel is for all of the sexy aliens and kirk sleeping around and all of those stereotypes the first two iterations of star trek were pretty sexless shows they don't really go into a lot of explicit um, sex amongst the characters people tend to just get on with their jobs and don't seem to consider sex as like a massive part of their culture mm -hmm. and like compare that to uh, i'm thinking about this because yesterday i just was watching a really good um video called commodifying by validation oh yeah by verily bitchy Thank you. I could not pronounce that name. <laughs> I love their stuff, and I've never heard them speak the channel name out loud. <laughs> I have verily, verily, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with Verily, and, and uh, great. So in that one, the, um, they were talking a lot about the representation of Captain Jack Harkness from Doctor Who, who is explicitly from a future in which sex has become so normal that everyone is just from modern standards inherently horny mm -hmm. but yeah it's an interesting one to just look at because we have a incredibly repressed sexual culture especially in modern america um even if you compare it to something like the you know the 70s and 80s um 
my partner was just reading um, How to Survive a Plague, and so I'm getting some information from a secondhand reading of that. But just, um, you know, before uh, HIV became a very prominent force in the world, like the way that we thought about sex was completely different. Like everyone of our generation who was raised after this thinks about uh, sex and STIs and this kind of interaction inherently differently than even people did think of it about like 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we've we've entered a particularly like s- not exactly sex negative, but kind of sex erasing time period. And I think uh, Star Trek, especially in the 80s and 90s era, was very much a reflection of that in the way that it deals with these issues because there's there's like a sexy cat lady in this movie and there's the objectification of women especially a her in the one dance scene but otherwise sex is not really a force in this at all it's not a driving emotion it's never been like one of the central things that the characters are trying to achieve um, there's very little kind of even flirting and things in most iterations, which I think is one of the reasons that you do get so many uh, queer interpretations of the friendships in the show, because there's so little explicit sexualization elsewhere. Yeah, I think the only character that really gets like any explicit sexualization is Riker in, in Star Trek. I'm trying to think of anyone else. I think Riker's really the main one yeah generally and even if you look at the text of the original series the introduction of the pon far for vulcans like uh, spock needing to have sex is framed as kind of a crisis it's also framed as kind of horrific too <laughs> like monstrous like there's there's uh like horror music and stuff going on there in certain scenes you know yeah i, I guess as far as uh you know star trek five here you could also sort of see that when sex does come up, it's very much being framed as a vice in some fashion. That this is a way to be tricked or distracted from the, the uh, you know, you know, building up your future society on Nimbus Three here, and that's kind of it as well. So it's you know, you know, with the the uh, amok time there, it's you know, also very much a this is a, a necessity, but we have to feel bad about it, I guess. Well, I think it's while it's not explicit, like I said, it's a fairly unsexed movie, but mm-hmm. they do have one scene near the end. Since this is supposed to be almost a critique of religion and especially cult like religions, one of the things that they mention at the end of the movie to talk about how uh, the peace accords have been advanced through this experience of them all getting along is that. The Federation representative and the Vulcan representative now applied to be in a sexual relationship, mm-hmm. which came explicitly from this religious experience, which is kind of a opposite take than you usually get from religions, which tend to be very sex negative, at least in the modern American view. Uh, I, I'm for more uh, religions that are sex positive. Yes, exactly. I'm here for that, too. And that is interesting. It's just getting me more to think about like sex throughout Star Trek as well, because like Gene Roddenberry is always someone who's like very like trying to push sex into things. Um, Hello, as for a writer. Me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it was also like very male gazy and 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 more carnal pleasurey than it was a uh, relationship and emotional based sex. Um, and again, very male gazy. As well. Yeah, and I don't um, know what it would have looked like, but to his credit, later on Roddenberry did 
was like very explicit in saying that there should be more sexual representation in Star Trek. I mean, if you want to get the closest to what his vision of like sex in Star Trek would be, read Star Trek, the motion picture, the novelization, um, which is very male gazy. Like literally in that book, and I kid you not, this is this is part of the text. This is literally the explicit text of that book um, that he has Decker, Captain Decker, fuck the Ilea probe, the probe that V'ger sends back into sentience is how that works. Wow. That the that uh, that is the explicit text like it is. The Ilea probe is just a robot. And then he goes to Decker and her go to her room and he's trying to like connect with her and trying to like bring Ilea back and she's just straight up a robot. And then he just starts noticing her breasts and her and like and he's like, ah, screw it, I'm gonna fuck her. Um and he fucks the probe, and the probe then remembers that she's Ilea, and there's like a whole section where that whole segment is like told from V'ger's point of view, where it's like the like V'ger reads it as like an attack and it's like, oh, he's violating the probe and so that it's losing contact with me and becoming more self-sentient. And so it's like literally in that book, like Decker fucks the Alia probe back into sentience, which is a whole thing. <laughs> and that explains why there was the line about her having a vow of celibacy. Yup. It all coming together now. Oh dear. Quite, quite literally coming together. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, had to do it. So yeah, I mean, it's just it, it it's just interesting to talk about like sex and religion in 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 Star Trek because I think like there are two topics that the sh- that the show seems like like Roddenberry was also very vehemently anti-religion in a lot of senses, um, and so it's just like the both sex and religion are two things that like I think a lot of the people behind the show, especially Roddenberry, but just in general, like even if you look at like for all of his awfulness, like Rick Berman in his very homophobic, sexist way was also like weirdly focused on that. It, it's just like, these are two topics that are like so thought about behind the scenes of Star Trek that it's weird that it doesn't become explicitized within the series, positive or pos- really positively or negatively in any clear the, way. The forbidden topics. You can really see the tension in kind of even early Roddenberry's like, I'm unclear when he became like an outspoken atheist in the timeline, but there's a lot of tension in even early Star Trek whenever they have one of the God episodes where like obviously because it's on American television in the middle of the 60s, they're going to have to have a like, we don't believe in you, Apollo. We have our own good old American God. (laughs) We got the one and that's sufficient, so. So go away, you. I mean, the the one time it's like kind of positively shown it, it is is it is when it's sort of alluding to Christian religions, uh, in um. Bread and circuses. What, what episode that in. Bread and circuses. Yeah, which you also kind of have in here at the end with the sort of very vague, semi-humanistic God is in all of us thing that they kind of throw in at the end of the of the movie. I mean, also something else you could analyze. Something else you could analyze too is the fact that like the God that we like the the guy that we see on um shakari takes the form of the abrahamic god as opposed to any other god that he could have taken on yeah just to say like oh well i see humans here this is what you think i should look like yeah well i know other god from uh earth's past not just the not even just the abrahamic god but explicitly the like renaissance era view of the abrahamic god that is now ubiquitous 
big uh, flowing beard with all the curliness going on here and you know, and sort of this very stern, fatherly sort of gaze going at you until he shoots lightning out of his eyes. Which is where the, I mean, you get into, like, um, we did Star Wars not too long ago and I was critiquing the uh, hero's journey monomyth idea. But you get explicit monomythology ideas in this movie saying that Shakaria is the origin point of, you know, all religion, basically. Even though that's proven to be false, it's... A little unclear. I think it, it, in interesting ways, it goes back to the Stargate discussion we were having before, yeah, where yeah. it's left pretty unclear whether this entity is taking on aspects of existing human cultures and religions and trying to represent itself within those to gain power, or whether it's psychic connection attempts of escape thing are influencing the development of human cultures and religions i'm suddenly having flashbacks to uh the satan pit from doctor who yeah yeah which is completely false i'm sorry i love anthropology even though i'm not an anthropologist and all this is completely false they all go every culture on earth has had a devil figure it's like no you have read devil (laughs) figures backwards onto history because of your stupid western viewpoints on anthropology in the 50s and also i should say that is something that uh star trek actually did too in Star Trek the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. There's an episode of Star Trek the Animated Series where Kirk meets uh, an alien who claims to have been the origin of all devil myths in 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 human history. Yeah, they do several of those. They have that. They have this origin of all snake gods through human history. Yeah, yeah. And and interestingly enough, like, uh, not, I don't think either of them are vilified either. Like, even the devil character comes across as more of like a loki-esque uh mischief god well we talked about that when we did that episode um however many months ago at this point but it was a very interesting take on this kind of concept which is also an interesting thing to actually contrasting those directly contrasting the magics of mangus 2 with the final frontier where they meet the trickster devil, who they canonically state is literally the Christian devil. Yes. Like, he was on Earth, they met him, he was the Christian devil, full stop. And they go, well, he still deserves consideration as a sentient being, versus this thing where they meet this thing, go, oh, this thing's a little hostile, I don't like that, and then immediately kill it. <laughs> it was even funnier, too, because we give more more due to the devil than we do to the <laughs> supposed god. I'm just, say, I'm just saying, Star Trek the Animated Series is 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 deeper in thought than, than this movie. Surprise! <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of things you could talk about in that. Yeah, but yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating. Now, I, I, there's another, uh, you know, a previous on uh, a Star Trek experience that uh, I think we haven't really brought up here, but is kind of related, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, called The Way to Eden. So, uh, so, you know, any, you two have any uh, comparisons between uh, Cybok and Dr. Severin to uh, to uh, note here at this point? To be fair, it has been a hot minute since I've seen The Way to Eden, so I actually can't speak too <laughs> That was the hippie episode, yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, the, that one is explicitly a very 60s critique of counterculturalism, where the hippies are unambiguously 
idiots who somehow managed to take over the ship and then their false promise thing at the end is the false promise of you know hippie socialism and and, drug-fueled goodness and they're and they're special eden yeah and since the doctor there was um explicitly um based on um leary or at least very inspired by the sort of you know leary and the other sort of drug in the sort of drug leaders of the time i guess kind of the like um lsd gurus i guess is the closest term you could get to um it was a very different cultural moment than in the 80s when you had kind of the rise of television evangelicalism which is what this movie is supposedly critiquing yeah though it is interesting to compare the very explicit takedown of the hippie movement which was in a lot of ways the hippie movement was very christian religiously inspired they were taking the literal christian text and saying why don't we do all of this love each other free communism stuff that you know jesus wanted yeah later on you're getting that is arguably a perversion of christian texts with modern um right-wing evangelicalism and television evangelicalism which a lot of older evangelical churches have explicitly called out as heretical uh that's not just me they the agnostic talking so so so, well this this new big uh guy on tv here is going to preach this thing called the prosperity gospel who we're you know you're supposed to make a lot of money and then give him most of it um that's not really what our religion's about guys come on (laughs) The, you could you could have a reading of this movie, a very charitable reading of this movie, but it would go more in line with the general Star Trek ethos that everyone comes together looking for God, finds God to be false. They abandon the religious part of the religion by getting rid of the God. They reject God from religion, basically. But in the ending, they've all continued the sort of tenets of the religion in the deal with your trauma and be nice to each other. Yeah. And even in the only other time that that's even complicated a little bit further is with um, the Bajorans in Deep Space Nine, which would be kind of the same thing where it's like, oh, the gods of the Bajorans are just aliens that have a different view of time. But at least there's like a, a respect for people's belief that they are gods. Like Cisco even says, mm-hmm. like, you got to see it from their point of view sort of thing. But it's still sort of like denying the divinity of of the gods. It's sort of saying like, no, 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 they're just aliens. And we can respect people's belief that they are gods, but they are just aliens in, in, in actuality of fact. And if- um, this is an art. I've seen the, a well, I've seen an argument for an argument. I was going to say that's a very clunky sentence. I've seen a lot of discourse around this idea that the tenets of the religion should probably be looked at and possibly embraced more, especially in more progressive left-leaning circles where religion has become such a sticking point. The idea that religion is is explicitly the domain of like right-wing and Republican entities in the United States, whereas a lot of the actual teachings of most religions are antithetical to those views and if you could embrace more of the actual 
viewpoints and accept the religion on that basis, it would create less of an overall political divide. Yeah, there's definitely been a certain level of trauma caused by the misuse of religion that folks just kind of you know it drives a distrust and aversion to. Um, so that you know that's sort of I guess the main sticking point. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I remember last year I did a video called uh, like religion in Star Trek where I kind of dove into like an overview of religion in Star Trek, and I had a lot of people that got angry at me for um, uh, trying to be like, oh, you're saying religion is a good thing because my ultimate thesis of the argument was like I wish that Star Trek would show a diversity and plurality of religion more than it actually does because it's a fairly, uh, you know, non-religious uh, show and in, in showing any sort of religious thing where ultimately my point was kind of more like I think Star Trek should be I'm not saying like you need to have like characters coming up and be like hey look the the you know Hindu god is now like a thing that we believe in or whatever it's like no 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 what I think you should do is like show that these cultural um elements of of different human cultures still stick around like what's wrong with like having um like a character in Star Trek sh sit Shiva for example, and like having to deal with that or, um, you know, taking other elements of this because we Star Trek likes to code certain aliens as uh, religious in and in, in use certain religious iconography. Like I think of um, even in Star even going up to Star Trek Picard, like there's the um, the Romulan women sect uh, that is like uh, I forget the name of them, but they're the, always the, the truth telling sect that Star Trek Picard as a show sort of uses. Um, and they're sort of very much uh, coded in uh, sort of. Uh, islamic ways um but so it's willing to code these cultures as alien but not willing to give actual people in um in human ways to have their religious sort of cultural affectations i think the only show that i can even think of that even mildly hints at it is star trek lower decks because you see some people in star mm -hmm. trek lower decks some of the crew members in the background are wearing hijabs and things like that which i think is really really wonderful i was gonna bring that up actually <laughs> Yeah, I think mm -hmm, there's a definite mm -hmm. argument for Star Trek should portray itself as diversely as it pretends to be. Because there's always mm -hmm. been lip service to multiple religions in Star Trek, even amongst humanity. Like, they, they keep having these, doesn't, human, doesn't your humanity believe in a god? And they go, well, on Earth there are many gods. Yeah, it's like no one, like no one even bothers. Again, we go back to like the Abrahamic look of this god in this movie. Is like no one even bothers to mention that. It's like, well, what if? Wh why not have like something different? You know? Yeah, and there's definitely a through line in all of Star Trek that religion is the counterpoint to progress, especially scientific progress, mm -hmm. which is actually a very odd, more modern idea because, especially during the Enlightenment, and uh, even through up into like like 40s uh we started to get a little bit of a turn in the 50s 60s and i would have to research this to figure out exactly when we got this stark religion science divide but i'm not saying there weren't some problems with this but science was considered the exclusive domain of the religious for thousands of years because science and looking into the natural world is how you explain religious phenomenon you want you want to understand God, so yeah, <laughs> got to understand yeah, the world. Yeah, the Enlightenment idea of understanding the world will bring you closer to the God that created it. That's, I mean, that's like the isn't that like the explicit argument of um, Carl uh, um, Carl Sagan's Contact, like that religion and science are just two sides of the same coin, where religion is sort of the more like science is just trying to explore the rules by which. 
God made the universe. Uh, you know, there's there's always that theory that God uh, or whatever sort of thing created the universe or God or gods was just a really smart scientist, you know, who just created something. Yeah, the divine watchmaker idea. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, I think for a movie, it, this is one of the things that confuses me so much about the stated intentions of Star Trek V and the way that it actually played out in the movie because it's supposed to be an indictment of these kinds of religious practices, especially the cult-like zeal that you get. But everything in the text shows us that religion isn't that bad. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad message to have, but since it seems to be entirely accidental, I don't really know what to make of the reading. <laughs> I really, I, I think it really just comes down to like that. So, probably William Shatner and or whoever helped write this, uh, having a highfalutin idea, but not really being all that interested in in playing it out or having the skill to play it out. Um, you know, and being much more interested in the in the aesthetics of science fiction than in actually discussing the the stuff going on like for example i i keep going back to nemesis as like a good example of this is like nemesis because it's a, that one movie is at least a little bit clearer in its intentions than this movie is um but that movie is supposed to be all about uh nature versus nurture and it has a great setup in that with like two versions of picard who have been raised in two different ways and sort of you have that idea but then it never goes anywhere with that like shin shinzan doesn't move or change as a character picard doesn't really move or change as a character uh, it doesn't really dive into that idea in any way. It's just sort of like, yeah, nature versus nurture is a thing, and then just stay static with it. Um, and this movie, I think, is better in that sense, in terms like it's not necessarily static, because I do think the characters change, but I don't think it's ultimately ever in service of the thematics of the movie. Like, I don't think the thematics of the movie are really in concert with what the character arcs are. And therefore, it just comes across as like, I'm not sure what this movie is trying to say. Yeah, so there's I, a wrapping I, here, but it's not really servicing much. And I see your argument in it being very uh, like an interesting movie to dissect because there's a good movie in here. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. really good mm-hmm. points, especially with like the way that that politics like future politics that have like dedicated themselves to a certain vision of progress have created this hellscape of a peace planet and everyone is then brought together by their shared religious experiences after the fact and wouldn't that have been a cool idea to explore in undiscovered country of like like uh, undiscovered country and most of Star Trek in general just kind of tends to move forward like just sort of ignoring that final frontier ever existed (laughs) But it would have, and and you can honestly, you can read two, three, four, and six as like one continuous story. Um, oh, this is kind of like this kind of happened on the side. <laughs> yeah, uh, or didn't happen. I mean, there are even some people that even argue that this movie just basically was not considered to have ever occurred. I mean, that's even backed up by the fact that Star Trek Discovery never back uh, acknowledges Cybok. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like, wouldn't that have been interesting to think of like this great peace between these two great rivals, the Federation and Klingons? came out of number one Kirk overcoming his own trauma at his like son's death, which kind of even fits the thematics of this movie with like trauma being overcome to fix political divide. So that even kind of ties in nicely there. But also the fact that it comes out of like a sort of acceptance of the tenets of religion, even if we reject the notion of of, of a specific deity, 
but sort of accepting the tenets of a religion of, of friendship and brotherhood and coming together um, as a whole. And I think that that would have been interesting to, you know, tie that together. And really, if they, instead of it making two, three, four, and six coming together and flow together, making it two, three, four, five, and six flow together. I mean, it, it does been. narratively flow. And they like, you could really read this as a setup to the peace talks and the Klingon peace accords that we're getting to in the next movie. And then especially by the time you get to the Federation and Klingon being allies in next generation. And it's, it's interesting that they want to reject it. Cause I, I do feel like as you were alluding to with the comments on your video, there is an odd sort of a wholesale rejection of religion as a concept. And there's really something to be said for examining the ways you can divorce religious ideas and religion as a sort of cultural and uh, like a cultural and community minded entity versus religion as a power center. Yeah, I think I mean, uh, with a lot of those comments, too, I think a lot of it, I mean, speaking again about like trauma, a lot of those comments came out of a place of trauma. I think a lot of what people were rejecting when they were like commenting on that, a lot of what I saw is like, I'm sorry, I cannot like I even got some unsubscribes from that video where people were saying, I can't support somebody who says nice things about religion because I was personally traumatized by religion, Indeed. which is something I totally get, especially since I have a like, I mean, obviously, as a you know queer creator talking about queer content, I have a fairly large queer fan base and as such like i totally understand queer people having trauma associated with religion given the you know homophobia and and um transphobia and all the things that you know especially christian religions have um, it's really hard to separate yeah and so I, I totally understand it i do think that you can definitely like if people don't want to engage with it because of personal history that's a incredibly understandable and i'm certainly not trying to critique oh, sure. any individual i'm never trying to critique individuals no, I mean that, that that's the point that I can get to is like I'm I my my point was never to overlook anyone's individual trauma. It was more to just say like I have I have many issues with religion as an institution, but as a personal set of like beliefs and things that we strive towards and things that we strive uh for in terms of like being good people. I think there's a lot of things there and then also the cultural element on top of it too. Like again, like you know, sitting Shiva or like the like, the, I mean, the very fact that Jewish people were able to survive by sort of like doubling down on their culture and doubling down on ritual and, and sort of trying really hard to carry that forward, I think is very important and something that we shouldn't forget. And also and also something this is I, I joke about this often, but I do kind of weirdly think about it is like I just remember going into my grandparents house who were like they were very overtly Roman Catholic. They did the rosary all the time and their house is decked out in um, like crosses and, and Jesus images like their house is just full of religious imagery. And then I look around my house and I like, I have Star Trek imagery everywhere. Yeah. I have these science fiction things everywhere. And I, I've explicitly stated many times that I draw a lot of my life lessons and morality from Star Trek. And I, I would never like deify Star Trek, but I mean, even some people have saying Gene's vision, like the, the dynamic is certainly similar. And I don't necessarily wish to devalue my my point is not not to devalue someone's religious beliefs to saying oh look Star Trek fandom is just exactly the same but this is this dynamic is something that humans are drawn to in 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 some ways I think a, a structure that gives us strength stability and guidance you know and you reminded me mm -hmm. of two points in there one like especially with uh, it's completely understandable of queer people being 
hurt by a religion, like even growing me myself growing up in not a particularly religious family, some of those ideas like filtered their way through and caused me a lot of like problems growing up, even though nothing was explicitly religious about the way my family thought about these things. But the, um, the, even the homophobia in Christianity, like to say that we should reject religion totally because of the way that people are using it for homophobia is basically accepting their interpretation of the religion, mm -hmm. which in a lot of ways is counter to the actual text and beliefs of the religion. Because something yeah. like, like using something like Christianity, especially like, the like writings of the new testament and following like jesus's ideas in that completely speaking as a non-christian agnostic so that outside interpretation to be clear is like a lot of those teachings of love everyone around you and do not accept the tenets of the system and especially the complete rejection of burgeoning capitalism in the roman empire uh is counter to the ways that it's being used to promote hatred and violence and all the other things that we associate with now and rejecting religion wholesale over that is ignoring the fact that this is a perversion of the original teachings yeah and i don't think that it gets put enough pushback enough and i mean like it's something again I, I i draw this parallel i still see the same sort of thing happening within like star trek circles like there's this sort of like constant push in these dynamics where it's like we people have this version of something in their head that often ignores certain elements of the actual tenets of it. Like there are people that's like only real Star Trek fans, like real Star Trek fans don't like this new Trek discovery or Picard or whatever. Um, and it's sort of going back to like uh, the whole point of Star Trek's values is accepting infinite diversity and infinite combinations. So yeah, maybe different, but like Star Trek discovery being different is part of that infinite diversity, and infinite combinations. And the same thing with religion is like with, homophobia transphobia it, it, those are explicitly against like the whole idea of love thy neighbor as you love thyself sort of things that a lot of religions have or at least like some element of kernel of that in there in, in almost pretty any religion um and yet it's sort of weaponized because there's this sort of uh this expectation that humans have that you must conform like i have an interpretation of how this thing what this thing is and my interpretation must be the only correct one and therefore everyone else must conform to it um as opposed to accepting that idea of infinite diversity and infinite and sort of yeah thing. and even lumping it all together in a monolith like that the you know the branch of the church that my family and other members of my family are more involved with and my family came from like recently full on schismed over acceptance of LGBT people in the church. Like mm -hmm, this is not, mm -hmm. you know, to to view all religion as one monolithic entity like this is something that bothers me. Even though I'm not trying to critique yeah. individual experiences with it, I can understand wanting to separate yourself from it completely, but we like need some more nuanced looks at this than we seem to be getting especially recently. But having but having no nuance makes it easy to make arguments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think this is also just an element of, like, this is something that just reminded me, too, of, like, this is just something that science fiction tends to do in general, is it tends to put itself at odds with religion and look down, and, and not even just put itself at odds with, but, like, have a snide look down on religion of, like, typically religion is often used to, like, like, I, there's, like, many Doctor Who episodes and other things where it's just sort of like, oh, religion is just used to justify really horrible things. Um, 
But I think that that I think humans do that with anything. Anything can be used to justify that. I mean, science can be used to justify that, you know? Saying because something was used to justify an awful thing and then equating the awful thing with the thing that someone used to justify it is just such a disingenuous argument. Mm-hmm. But it's something that science fiction does a lot to religion. And I would even say that Star Trek, in certain iterations, like Deep Space Nine particularly, I think is better about that. It's not perfect by any means, but it's still better about that in some senses. But it still leans into that quite a lot. So I think overall... Since we're running long, since we're running long again, because we try to plan these things out honestly, and then we get into like a twenty-minute discussion on religion, no one thought we were going to get into. <laughs> well, I mean, it's inter- I mean, it means that there is something to say about this movie, hence it justifies my point. <laughs> but I think that it's, it's interesting to see how this movie accidentally tripped over its own feet backwards into an interesting point about religion. <laughs> Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've been a little uh, quiet here, uh, but uh, you know, I'm I'm just like going, yeah, yeah, I, to all you guys' points. So <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> so to move on into wrapping up a little bit, like we all wanted to talk a little bit about the aesthetics because, despite the weird stuff that they were doing in this movie, aesthetically, it's got some good things in it too. Yeah, yeah. like that, like that uh, forward observation ra- lounge. It's kind of awesome. Exactly. I- I actually think that that's one of the better sets in all of Star Trek. Like, I love the, like, the wheel on it, sort of, like, making explicit the submarine nautical metaphor. I mean, not submarine, but more nautical idea that they really leaned into with all of the Star Trek movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, Star Trek in general kind of leaned into that, but, yeah. I think it's it's starting to lean into the production era of, you know, since Next Generation was going, you know, around the same time here. it's it's getting into that kind of design aesthetic where people are saying this is supposed to be this is supposed to be a ship that people will spend literal years living on. Like mm-hmm. it, they even use some of the Star Trek Next Generation sets mm-hmm. in this movie. Some of the corridors are, are are Next Generation sets, and so it should of course look like some place that people would like to spend time, as mm-hmm. opposed to of course in the original iteration it was designed to look a lot like a naval submarine and drawing a lot of military influences and i know people do live on those for years at a time but they arguably shouldn't yeah no i remember i was i was just watching what was the movie that i watched recently uh crimson tide i watched crimson tide the other day um and i was just like watching that submarine movie i'm like how do this many people stay on this tiny thing very carefully yeah. Now, see, I'm I've always been the opposite of claustrophobic. So I've like toured submarines as a kid and was like, yeah, this is cozy. I love it. But it's not a good environment to spend months and months and months in. Mm-hmm. My my issue, I'm not I'm not. Speci- I mean, I can get claustrophobic more if it's like really, really compressed space. Um, I'm not super claustrophobic. The more I think it's just like that many people in that. Condition. Yes. I'm having a uh, flashbacks to Snowpiercer suddenly. <laughs> and I do know this is just this is completely juvenile. It's where my mind goes every time I watch this movie though. They're in the forward observation lounge, they're next to the big window, there's a giant ship's wheel. Every member of the crew goes down there in their off time and grabs the wheel and goes, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I can totally imagine that. His course crash coming up. Uh I'm gonna go down to the wheel room. <laughs> <laughs> so uh P- Paradise City, it's uh Kind of Mad Max going on there. Uh, any comments about uh, that sort of design there? I, mean, I think it looks cool. It's definitely Mad Max. I don't really think it was saying anything. Uh, yeah, I don't think it was trying to. You get into, I, I realize we don't have time to get into the full implications of this. It's something that I've had a critique on 
in every iteration of Star Trek. But every time they show like something outside of the Federation, it's like a frickin' Buck Rogers, Mad Max style shanty town where people are shiving each other over water. <laughs> like we're getting into some tank girl level shit here. And it is such a bad contrast. Like I always loved the kind of promise and idea of Star Trek. It's why I will die on the hill that Next Generation is still the best iteration of Star Trek we've gotten to date. <laughs> and it's because they so explicitly get into the, yes, you can have a utopian vision of the future. And yes, it is difficult, but living up to those standards, even though they're hard, is what lets it happen. Yep. And mm -hmm. all of these things are they're like, well, we're living next to a shanty town, but you know, that guy lives over the border, so we can't, yeah, sorry. It's like, no, this mm -hmm. is not the thing that you were trying to write and you are through your unimaginative use of modern grim dark tropes are ruining the usefulness and aesthetic of the show like the the entire message of star trek the explicit message that the thing was built on and worked towards and arguably got got better at doing over time was the idea that we can get over ourselves and build a better future but every time you do this, like, but what about the dark, hidden underbelly of the Federation thing? You're saying, nope, we actually can't. <laughs> the, I, uh, this specific thing actually has prompted me to write a story, which I need to get back to re uh, revising, but uh, where the, the, the characters in the story realize, wait, we live in a, a, a utopia. There must be a dark underbelly. And so they go lo looking for it, but they don't find it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I, I don't know. I actually, I, I kind of, I, I would push back against that a little bit. I don't think this movie critiques that enough, but I actually don't mind when Star Trek does sort of like look at the dark underbelly of it. Like, I think Deep Space Nine sort of like does that really well, and even, even with my hesitations with how it pulled it off, I think Star Trek Picard's concept concepts of a federation that became much more hawkish, um, is, I think, actually well precedent because it's this idea of like if uh that we need we need to maintain uh our values as opposed to just sort of saying like yep we have them and resting on our laurels like uh, one thing that I actually found I found interesting is that um a lot of people there there's this one podcast that I listen to where this guy interviews people who are new to Star Trek like who just are starting to watch it one of the things that he consistently finds is that people who are new to Star Trek who just jump into Star Trek today who don't actually uh have any like sort of touchstones with the fandom or anything like that actually are surprised when he says like oh people read star trek as a utopia because a lot of new fans actually don't inherently read star trek as a utopia like a certainly much better place but not as perfect i mean even in things like uh next generation even had like the the rights of data being questioned and so i think it's sort of interesting this idea that like i think th there's a quote from data that i always really love that's credited to gene roddenberry um, and I don't necessarily know if he said it or wrote it or, or if it's just sort of being attributed to him, but it's this idea that data says in next generation, we must strive to be more than we all. It must, it does not matter if we never reach our ultimate goal. It's the, um, it's the effort that yields reward. And so I always like this idea of like Star Trek is not actually a utopia, but a place that strives to be a utopia. And it's only when people think that oh, it's only when people sort of start, uh, believing that it is a utopia, that it actually ceases to be less like one, if that makes sense. 
Um, and I think that this movie does not have the equipment to analyze that, but I do think that it this I, the concept of like a planet that fell apart because of like an attempt at peace that no one paid attention to because they just assumed it would work or stopped caring. Uh, kind of fits that idea, but I don't think the movie ever addresses it in any. Yeah, I can see that. It's definitely not critiqued enough in the movie. And I do think that while I can see that point that you sh- like resting on your laurels is what leads to problems, I do think that the way it's been done, especially in more modern iterations of Star Trek, is just we're just going to keep repeating the same governmental problems and the same mistakes and the same issues over and over and over again which gets to like a weird because there's like there's definitely a here's how things could go in the future if we don't change stuff style of science fiction which is where you get into some of your more dystopian takes Mm -hmm. and star trek has always been on the other side of maybe not a complete utopia but a yes things can get better yeah we've actually strived for it and i think my critique of this has always been how easily they show it falling apart, which in some ways can say that you always have to make sure that you're doing things to maintain your improvements, which I think is a good point. But by showing it falling apart in exactly the same ways that things do now every single time is really kind of hammering in a, yeah, you actually can't change stuff kind of message for me. Now there's a, uh, you know, the things are only uh, changed provided that you're able to pull off all that you promised. And if you fail even just a little bit, then everything falls apart, which is kind of not fair. See, there's that, there's another quote. I think it's from, I think this was a quote from DS nine of the, it's easy to be an angel in paradise. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of missing the implication that you should, that maybe you should go the other direction. Maybe being that is what creates the paradise. Yeah. I think so too. I I I could definitely hear you on it, and I think it's a larger conversation than than this one specifically gets in because I definitely think you're correct in that. I I think I lo- I think a lot of it ties into. I mean, something that we were even talking about in a religious context, but you could even tie it into this context. Is I think Star Trek is very much tied up into American idealism, like it is the idea of. Star Trek, the Federation in Star Trek is like an ideal form of what we would think the like American government should be in 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 sort of like the benevolent imperialistic ideas of things like the Prime Directive and stuff like that. And I think more recent iterations of Star Trek have leaned into uh, this either 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 they were intentionally doing so or it was just sort of this idea is like our inherent growing distrust in the United States of the institutions of the United States. And so I think like something like Discovery and Picard are both shows that have like sort of leaned into our inherent distrust of large scale uh, government organizations. And I and I think that that's it's coming across in that way. Um, yeah. So I think there's a larger discussion to be had. In, in yeah. There. And there's definitely a lo- really big discussion of this is the 60s vision of a utopian future. This is the 90s vision of utopian future. And this is the modern 2000s vision of like utopias suck. <laughs> no, I think Discovery is getting back into it with um, with uh, season three of that show, though. I think there's also stuff to critique there, like the conflation of the feder- of Federation and Starfleet. Very, very problematic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but that's a whole other thing. You know, there's a, I guess, a... a- Oh, you know, things have obviously changed in that uh, far future era. But uh, yeah, there's it would be kind of like 
kind of kind of nice to know why it changed in that case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure we would all love, and I'm sure you would all love to listen to us discuss like debate religion with Jesse for the next five hours. Unfortunately, sometimes we have other things to do. Like lunch. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Lunch, lunch is, is always good. So I think it's probably time to get into the utter nonsense thing that we like to call the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where we got our uh, normal folks here, we got our uh, special guests, and we got a lot of fun to be had here. So uh, our various contestants have been racking up lots of uh, uh, points here, so let's start handing out some prizes. So our first one is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize, which goes to Yosemite God, because he goes, woo, and such like Yosemite Sam a lot, but also because he has uh, cosmic powers of rock summoning and eye lightning, even if he is vulnerable to disruptors, what does he win, Gapwin? He wins a wonderful vacation to Yosemite Park, where we started this whole thing. And hmm. He can just be in God's church. God's outdoor church. There was a better joke in there, but I'm moving on. I'm sorry, everyone. I failed you, just like God did. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, so Klingons will get some revenge on you later. Our, our second prize is the Cold War Strategy Prize, which goes to the Tree of Ambassadors for their roles as token representatives in a peace scheme that was more show than substance. Uh, what do they win, Jesse? Uh, I think they're going to win one of those Go Climb a Rock shirts that uh, William Shatner is wearing in this movie. It's a really flexible uh, kind of nice fabric, and I think it's really, really wonderful and has a great message for all hmm. of us. Might uh, be better uh, use of their time, too. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> our third prize is the rejecting surak prize which goes to cybok for going all logic be damned guys i'm gonna go seek god instead we what does he win uh Gepwin? cybok wins his own dang planet because the you know the vulcans got one the romulans got one cybok needs his own planet where everyone can just do the joy thing Possibly that's what they got to in the holodeck where Luxana Troy takes Alexander to the planet of joy and happy emotions. So maybe he already did, actually, thinking about it. Hmm. Hmm. I guess uh, we, we do have a, a, a coda of sorts for Cybok in that case. Hmm. Nice. Our uh, next prize is the ultimate showdown prize, which goes to Kirk and God, or this God, or whatever. But Kirk versus God, though, though as expected, Kirk and company comes out on top. Uh, but what does uh, what does Kirk win at the very least, Jesse? Uh, he wins a non-existent rock monster, I think, just to take home. You know, bring, make it a pet. Well, uh, maybe we can send him over to Galaxy Quest, and uh, they you know we can let him borrow that one. Wasn't a rock. <laughs> was a rock monster. Right, <laughs> 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 Wasn't a rock monster either. <laughs> our our next one is even in the future nothing works for the that poor shuttle at that uh, tractor beam business there because it had a really rough landing and seems to lack in- inertial dampeners. Uh, what does it win, Gapwin? It wins. Scotty should be in charge. Make Admiral Scotty make him in charge of all the ships. Everything will work. We'll get that transwarp thing figured out. Scotty should never have been allowed to retire. <laughs> I'll endorse that. And our final prize is Bros Before Captains, which goes to Spock for not shooting his brother, uh, even on stun, but but I guess that was maybe a disruptor in his hand. Anyway, what, what does he win, uh, Jesse? 
He wins one half of the rocket boots that defy gravity. Uh, he doesn't win both. He just wins one. Just one. <laughs> so uh, he needs to be a little careful then if he wants to go fly. And then yeah, exactly. He has to like really balance on just one foot. It's like standing on like your head, like standing on one foot and trying to rub your head at the same time, sort of thing. Well, at least he won't have to worry about uh, rocket blue, uh, rocket boot splits in that case. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Honestly, one rocket boot makes makes more sense than two. If we're being honest. <laughs> Quite true, quite true. Anywho, uh, that's all I got for today. Uh, so th- uh, thanks for all our contestants. Uh, uh, Jesse, Gepwin, uh, do you two want to take us away? Yes, everyone, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jesse, for putting up with this nonsense we try to shove into the end of the episode because it amuses us. And thank you, everyone, for coming along for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! One thing, if you didn't get half of our jokes in this, go watch Shatner of the Mountain because you all should have. <laughs> it's wonderful. A new experience for all of you. Yeah, I think that should have been at least as popular as the hobbits are going to Isengard. But... <laughs> Isengard, God, God, God. Limoy <laughs> uh, uh, did a, a, a song about Br- Bilbo Baggins. I know, it's amazing. Yes. I love it. The video is, the video has, has like, dancing multicolored women in 60s dresses it's glorious it's great it's it's a clash of like three different it's like star trek 60s aesthetic and lord of the rings that like none of it comes together at all i know (laughs) it clashes in so interesting a way it it comes back around to good (laughs) yeah creates a new aesthetic Why is Shatner the one who gets all the albums? <laughs> Not fair. Right, right. I, I want more Leonard Nimoy albums. I wish that career had taken off. Oh, I know. Agreed. That would have been so much better. <laughs> anyway, we should continue wrapping things up because we always get so distracted because <laughs> Jesse's so much fun to talk to. So, Jesse, no. <laughs> thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Always me. a good time. Mm-hmm. Where can people find more of Lovely You? Uh, if they want to find more of Lovely Me, I'll now give the full rigmarole. Like I said at the top, I have a YouTube channel where I do videos on Star Trek and other nerd topics, mainly talking about social and political issues like we've been kind of doing here today. Um, mainly LGBTQ issues, but, you know, it goes to many different things. Um, I also have a secondary channel called Jesse Gender After Dark oh where I do news and reviews and things like that. Sadly, it's not as, as risque as the title implies, but it's mostly just uh, my reactions and news stuff that... Uh, uh, can't really put on my main channel because it would hurt me in the algorithm, but it's just sort of like if you want more of my thoughts on different movies and things that have come out, that's where those live. I also have my own podcast, if you're a podcast fan. Um, the one that I mainly do is called What the Frell, which is a Farscape rewatch podcast that I do with the wonderful Council of Geeks, another wonderful LGBTQ YouTuber. Um, I have never seen Farscape, and so we're going through it for the first time in my case and a rewatch for her. Um, and then eventually once we hit the end of that, it may be morphing into another rewatch of another show, which I'll sort of tease there because we're nearing the end of Farscape's run. Um, and then I also have another podcast called Drawn to Trek that I do where we wa- rewatch every episode of Star Trek Lower Decks. 
um, and review that. Or sorry, we watch every episode of Circular Lower Decks and we review that um, with uh, the lovely Aaron Harvey. By the time this podcast comes out, this episode that you're listening to right now, I will probably not be on that show anymore just until the next season of Lower Decks because that, that podcast is about all animated Star Trek and I'm only on as a co-host with the Lower Decks stuff. Uh, so you can find all those episodes on there and I will be back on it in the future for Lower Decks Season 3. Um, and then, uh, oh, you can also find me on the social medias. I think the only social media that I'm regularly on is Twitter. Uh, but I do have all of them everywhere. You can find me at Jesse Gender on pretty much any of them. Uh, but the only one that I frequently post on is Twitter. That's pretty much all my stuff. Glorious. Yes, thank you. And while I wish we could have you on for every episode and you can just be our regular third co-host, um, I don't think you have time for that. (laughs) I don't think I have time for anything, to be honest. <laughs> yes, you seem pretty busy. <laughs> Next time, we are going to be moving on in the movies because we are not done with these freaking things yet. We have one more. So after this unqualified mess of a movie, they debated whether or not it would be the death of the series, but apparently they decided no because they still have what's arguably the best of the original run and possibly all of the movies overall, which is Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And Izix, we are having another reoccurring guest on for that one, yes? Yes, uh, the Omega Geek, also known as Dr. Omega, because they've uh, managed to uh, get their PhD since uh, last we chatted, I think. Oh, excellent. Oh, yay. All right, so next time, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, the one with Michael Dorn in it. Yes, (laughs) as Worf's granddad, I think, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can join us then next time, whenever I manage to edit these freaking things on Watches of Tomorrow. And more David Warren. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Dr. Omega helps the Enterprise end the Cold War. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>